Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program in the unofficial restart of the entire program. On Wednesday, we'll be doing the official restart of our group learning program. But today, we thought we would use today's class in order to give you a chance to get to know me better. This is a very different type of class where typically I will be sharing teachings and helping you guys and guiding you along the path in terms of certain content related to the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, Volume 1. But today is more kind of a casual conversation, just kind of giving you guys a chance to ask any and all questions that you'd like to get to know me and more importantly, really to see if there's anything that has happened in my life that can really benefit you. That's kind of one of the benefits of having a teacher is that in order for a teacher to get to the point where they're able to share these teachings and guide you to enlightenment, they would have needed to overcome a certain amount of obstacles in their life, a lot of obstacles in their life. And through overcoming those obstacles, there's certain wisdom that we gain that can help you in your life. So this is an opportunity for you to ask any and all questions. And you can ask me any questions you like at any point in time throughout any time that you decide to study with me. But we thought we would kind of set this class aside and make it unique where there's nothing that I'm going to be sharing in terms of prepared content from the book, but just open up to any questions and all questions that you have. So I'm going to turn the class over to all of you and specifically the moderators. But let me just share that the way that you would ask a question is you would put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure that you get a chance to ask that question through them either sharing the question that you've put into the comments or if you're in zoom you can electronically raise your hand and you can ask any questions or follow-up questions directly so with that i'll just turn things over to all of you and any questions that you might have thank you all for being here hello sure well a uh, first of all let me use this chance to say thank you for all what you do sharing your time your effort and energy to you uh, for sharing these teachings which of course helps everyone in our life so uh, really thank you and uh, in behalf of everyone who's learning with you i really say thank you well let's start from the very beginning a uh, how can you describe your childhood my childhood i would say was very difficult very problematic very difficult <laughs> I remember many of the details from my childhood, going all the way back to when I was four years old. That's the earliest memory that I have. Grew up in what people would probably consider a poor community. My mother at the time was a, a single mother because she was married to my father, but my father and her had split while she was pregnant with me. And my father was not interested in being with her even 
while she was about eight or nine months pregnant, actually punched her in the stomach really hard, attempting to, to hurt me. Because at the time, he didn't think that I was his child. So he thought that my mom had had an extramarital affair and that I wasn't his. So growing up, I never remembered him. I only heard stories about him, which I later met him when I was about 20 years old. But we grew up in what we call in America a trailer park, which is essentially a mobile home. And this is some of the places where people have the least amount of income to be able to live. And that's where I grew up, up until about age six. And then we moved to another city, to a little bit more established home. And then we moved to some other places as well. But I was born in Washington, D.C. and grew up in Southern Maryland. And as I was growing up, there was all kinds of problems in our household in terms of verbal abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, things like this that was going on. I have a lot of memories of all of those things. I have an older sister who her and I had a very contentious relationship, very difficult relationship growing up all throughout the years. One of the things that I remember most prominent about my childhood is I didn't understand why I, at the age of six, eight, nine, 10, 11, and so forth, had all this love in my heart and being very interested and wanting to love other beings, but yet I wasn't experiencing the same thing in return. In my home with my mother, my father, my sister, things like this, there wasn't really what I would describe as love. In fact, As I got older in my adult life, I questioned whether my mother actually loved me or not because I never heard that from her until I ultimately asked her one day when I was in like my upper 20s or 30s. I asked her, you know, do you love me? Because I never heard that growing up. You know, I didn't have hugs and kisses from mom. I didn't have I love yous and things like this. I didn't have a father around. I had a stepfather, but he was not really understanding how to be much of a father. So for all intents and purposes, I didn't have a father. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up because that's where I received the love that I was craving from some kind of parental figures. So during the long summers of school or during Christmas breaks or whenever I was sick or ill, I always found myself very much interested in spending time in my grandparents' home. So they lived about 30 minutes away. So I would oftentimes go there for weeks and weeks. And during the summers, I would spend months there. And then as soon as I would come back home, because my grandparents weren't interested in me just essentially being attached to them, that they knew I needed to be at home too. But as soon as I would go home, there would be all kinds of problems at home. And I would beg my grandparents to come back to their home. So in all growing up, it was lots of turbulence, lots of difficulties, lots of challenges. And I ended up getting into a lot of trouble with the law. I ended up being what would be classified as a juvenile delinquent, where I would break the law. I would steal, I would steal cars, I would take my parents' car, I would get in accidents, I would use drugs and alcohol, things like this. I had all kinds of trouble growing up in school. I never actually completed the ninth grade. The last official grade that I completed was eighth grade. But eventually I ended up going to 
what was called a group home, which is where if you've broken enough laws as a juvenile, they send you away to a place where it's called a group home where you live with all boys and they kind of try to teach you things that will help you and improve your life. And I really benefited from this. This was a, a great time of my life where I learned for 10 months there and there were a lot of adult males around that were sharing things that were kind of helping me to grow up. At this time, I was about 15 or 16 years old. And when I left there, I ended up having had gotten my GED, which is a graduate equivalency diploma. So even though I'd only ever passed eighth grade, I had enough knowledge that I was able to pass the test in order to get the equivalent of a high school diploma. And then I started going to community college and ultimately I went away to a four-year school and graduated with a bachelor's degree. It was very difficult and really challenging for me because I wasn't used to studying in order to learn and pass tests and things like this because I basically didn't really participate in high school from ninth to 12th grade. I, I was basically non-existent. So going away to college, I really had to work hard at that. But ultimately I graduated and while I was there in college, I had what was called psychotic breaks where the mind went into psychosis and at different times I was admitted to hospitals. I was in straight jackets. I was in five point restraints, being injected with all kinds of drugs. I was told that I was mentally ill and that my brain was defective and then that I would need to take this medicine for the rest of my life. And it was very devastating for me, for my social background, for my work background, for the aspirations of actually being able to graduate from college. But I ended up taking a break from college and then ultimately going back to school and completing school and graduating with a bachelor's degree in information systems management, which is a combination of business and computers. And then from there, I went on into a computer career working corporate America. Well, so you weren't born to a family that is fully practicing these teachings? When I was growing up, my family didn't have any particular religion or way of being in terms of practicing religion. They would have considered themselves Christian, and my sister was baptized Lutheran. But when I was growing up, my parents, my mother, didn't impress upon any particular religion for me, even though I ended up reaching out and going to a lot of different places to explore what was out there. I wasn't baptized as I was growing up. I was left to kind of do things on my own. So I ended up going to Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, Mormon, Catholic, all kinds of different things, Jehovah's Witness. I went to all these different Christian venues in order to see what people were teaching and what was there, but I never really found anything that really stuck until I started learning about Catholicism and Catholic teachings and as a person who was in college in my early 20s, when I was having those psychotic breaks, I experienced all kinds of energy from God, from heavenly beings, from experiences from beings from different realms. I had all kinds of different experiences growing up, a kind of spiritual experiences and miracles and things like this, but I never understood them. So when I had this psychotic break, I felt like there was 
something there in terms of religion. And I started to really get involved in Catholicism. And this is where I ended up getting baptized. And I had my confirmation, which is where you start taking Holy Communion as part of the Catholic faith. So growing up, there weren't any religious teachings in the home. There wasn't really any teaching at all. It was kind of like myself and my sister were just kind of left to do whatever we were going to do. Our parents were kind of busy in their own life doing their own thing. We were just kind of left to do whatever we would like to do. So I didn't learn or even know anything about Buddhism or that Buddhism even existed until I first came to Thailand. In 2002, I visited Thailand for the first time, and that's where I first started understanding something called Buddhism because I encountered monks. I encountered Buddhist statues. I was involved in Buddhist events and things like this. And that's where I first started to understand that there was something called a Buddha or Buddhism. But I didn't understand it at that time. And I didn't really understand Catholicism too much at that time either. I didn't understand how it was to be practiced. I just understood the belief part. I didn't understand the actual practice part. Seems to be a difficult childhood. So does this mean that one's childhood doesn't necessarily determine how will they function in life when they grow up? When you're growing up as a child, you either learn the right way to do things or the wholesome way to do things, or you learn the wrong way in the unwholesome way. And sometimes you can learn the wholesome way by being exposed to the unwholesome. So growing up, I learned an enormous amount of things, but it didn't all really sync up until much later in life. So early in life, I was exposed to a lot of unwholesomeness. All of this unwholesomeness that was going on in our household, it was leading to me learning unwholesome things. So what I learned growing up is that when we go into stores and somebody does something that you disagree with, What I observed from my parents is that you yell and scream and you get angry and you get hostile with this person. And the more pressure and anger that you have venting out of you, the more likely you are to get something accomplished. And this is what I saw growing up. But even though I saw that growing up, I didn't tend to do those things as I was growing up. I tended to always kind of do more of the things that I saw my grandparents doing, which was being patient and calm and loving and friendly and things like this. So when you're growing up, you're either going to learn all the unwholesome things and do those unwholesome things. You're going to learn all the wholesome things and do all the wholesome things. Or you can have just the opposite. You can have parents and caregivers that are doing all the unwholesome things. And then because of that, you learn all the wholesome things to do in the world. Or you can have parents that are doing all the wholesome things, and then you choose to be unwholesome as a result. So you can't really say with 100% certainty that, okay, because, you know, David lived this life where it was very difficult and very challenging in his life, it was, yes, very difficult and lots of difficulties, lots of challenges growing up. But in those difficulties and challenges later in life, it helped me to put together and understand why my mother had such a hard life, for example, and why she died so early in life, because she had a lot of anger and a lot of hostility and a lot of the other things that were part of these teachings that you learn about why we encounter and experience the things that we encounter 
I saw those things in her life. I saw those things in my life. And likewise, when you experience wholesome things in this life with the natural law of gamma, you can see those things as well. So I learned from experience, but I had to put all those lessons together myself because there wasn't anybody that was you know, really sitting me down and helping me to understand about wisdom and making wise decisions. And this is what's going to ultimately determine the type of life that you're going to experience going forward. Nick has his hand raised. Let's go to him. Thank you, Bossom. Um, yes, uh, you were a businessman, weren't you, teacher? Could you uh, elaborate on that? Uh, a successful one at that, as I understand. Yeah, so as I was coming out of college, what I decided to do is rather than just work at one company, I ended up taking a computer job at a technology company. And this was a consulting position where we basically flew around to all different places in the country and sometimes outside the country in order to provide computer consulting to various companies. So this was in the late 1990s when IT and technology was really booming, particularly around the year 2000, because people thought that the year 2000 was going to really mess up a lot of the computers. So there was a lot of work in the computer field around the late 90s and early 2000s. So for the first two and a half years out of college, I was traveling around working in corporate America. I was in and out of about 25 different companies and government organizations you know, I'd work for two months here, six months there, you know, a couple of weeks here. So I got exposure to a lot of different business environments. And what really intrigued me is how technology could be used in order to facilitate improvement in the business world and make things more streamlined and create opportunities and and ultimately profit. So for two and a half years, I did that. And then I moved on to another computer consulting company, a software company, went around to many different companies consulting on that particular software. And then I worked at some other corporate jobs. So for about seven or eight years, I worked in corporate America, making my way up to management, realizing that I was really on a track to be a director, a VP, you know, this kind of thing, you know, in corporate America. But the more that I saw what was going on, the more I wasn't interested in doing that. I realized that it wasn't everything that I thought it was. While I had lots of money and I was making lots of money in the computer field, I realized that that wasn't ultimately what I was most interested in. So this trip that I took to Thailand in 2002, it really changed my thinking because I was taught growing up that America was so wonderful. America was so great. We were so rich. We were so wealthy. We were so educated. And yet these are the things that we were taught that is going to lead to happiness and fulfillment in life. So when I came to Thailand in 2002 and I saw that here's these people that were pretty impoverished comparative to what we live like in the American world, you know, there were dirt roads, there were, you know, wooden shacks, there were people that, you know, really didn't have much walking around barefoot. I was in a village that hadn't seen a white person for 20 years, you know, they were coming up and touching my hand and rubbing my hand on their face and rubbing their hands through my hair like I was like Brad Pitt or something. And they had never seen somebody like this. I had little girls that were like 11, 12 years old peeking through bushes with a flashlight because they had never seen a person with white skin before at that age. And what I observed is that 
while I was being taught that it was money and wealth and education and all these different things that I felt like I had at that point in my life at the age of 27, 28, that that's what led to happiness. I realized that these people living very much impoverished were much happier than I was. They had smiles on their faces. Their families were very close. They were helping each other. They were very close knit. And while I was in Thailand, I observed that they had this culture that was so rich and so deep, more than what I had experienced in America, because America has only existed for about 250 years. And here I was in this culture that has existed for many centuries. And there's this deep, rich culture. And I observed these things in their family unit that I didn't observe in my family unit when I was growing up. I observed that the kids had a lot of respect and gratitude and politeness and kindness for their parents. There was this camaraderie amongst the family units. They were very interested in helping each other and seeing each other be successful. Where in my family, it was about knocking each other down, being harsh and aggressive with each other. But yet here in this place where we were kind of told as Americans that you know these people don't have money and maybe they don't have education, what I saw is they were actually much wiser in terms of how they live life than what I was experiencing back in America. So I got exposed to something called Thai massage here in Thailand when I came in 2002. And it was something that I'd never experienced before. And I decided that I was interested in bringing this back to America and allowing Americans to experience this Thai massage. It's done with your clothing on, you lay on the floor, they massage you with pressure in their hands, their thumbs, their elbows. They stretch you kind of like yoga, kind of assisted yoga. And it had such an impact on the body and the mind. I started doing this in America and I built up a business where I had two Thai massage centers and I had a Thai massage school where we were offering the massage as education for people to grow their career. Because when I started doing Thai massage in America, within six months, everybody considered me the expert because nobody else was doing it. I was the only one who was really doing it in the Washington, D.C. area. So newspapers, which were popular back then, were writing all about us. You know, we were on the Internet. We, you know, people were interviewing us to try to figure out what we were doing and bringing this into the community. And then I started bringing workers from Thailand to work in America. And I grew this company to about 20 or 25 employees. We made about 800,000 per year to a million dollars per year. And we were generating a lot of money, but I wasn't focused on the money. I was focused on helping people because I knew if I just helped people be well in terms of the massage and experiencing massage, improving their health of their physical body and their mind, and if I help them learn the massage and develop their career, that this would ultimately help them as people. And the money was just always there. I never had to focus on making money because I was always focused on helping people. And when I focused on helping people, then I never had to worry about money. It was just always there. It was always coming in. And during that time, this is where I started to understand that in sharing Thai massage, that it's part of this culture of Thailand and that if I was going to teach Thai massage, I couldn't just teach this technique of Thai massage, that I also needed to teach the Thai culture. And Thai culture is connected to Buddhism. 
in the roots of Thai culture is really Buddhism. So the more I was teaching Thai massage, I was also teaching Thai culture and, and Buddhism. And people would sign up for these classes to learn Thai massage. And they were learning that, but they were also learning about Thai culture and Buddhism as well. And this is what really kept people coming back. They were really interested in learning the Buddhism, even more so sometimes than the massage. And these th things were all being taught together at the same time. We weren't charging for the Buddhism. We were only charging for the massage and teaching the massage techniques. But wrapped into the education of the Thai massage, there was this understanding of Buddhism. So the more that my students were digging into Thai massage, Thai culture, and Buddhism, the more I had to do that as a teacher to be able to offer more and more to the students. Very interesting. Now, your experience with the computers and the government work at first, before the Thai business, do you think that uh, experience gave you or allowed you to do what you're doing now, like on the internet, how you're teaching here, how everything's seamless? Um, for example, how many platforms are you on right now teaching the words of the Buddha? Yeah, so all of these things that I'm doing now, it's a culmination of all the things that I learned throughout this life and the way that these things came together. So, you know, if it wasn't for me learning about computers and all the things that I learned through that experience, I wouldn't be able to have the skills to put that together for what I'm doing now. So all of these things have come together nicely to culminate into being able to share the teachings of the Buddha, yes, but then also being able to write a book and multiple books about the Buddhist teachings because I wrote books about Thai massage, for example, and those got published and were successful. So I was able to already understand how to write books when it was time to start writing books. And when it was time to start building websites to share the teachings of the Buddha, I already knew how to do that. Uh, when it came time to do live stream, you know, I didn't know how to do that in order to share the teachings of the Buddha, but at least I knew enough about computers that I could kind of figure it out. So all of these things that I've experienced throughout my life have culminated into the wisdom that I have about the Buddhist teachings, yes, in terms of all the wisdom that I grew up with and knowing and doing the wrong things, but then also discovering how to do all the wholesome things too. But then there was also all these skills and abilities that I was learning along the way that have all culminated into being able to share the teachings, but then also share them in the way that I share them in terms of using things like Facebook, YouTube, podcasts, all these things that I, I use in order to get these teachings out. So just like I was intrigued early on about how technology was used in order to create more productivity in the workplace and use technology in order to benefit and share a certain service or product in the business world, I realized in 2018, 2019, that I could use technology to also share these teachings of the Buddha. Because here I was developing all this understanding of the Buddhist teachings, and I was teaching these classes here in Chiang Mai, but there was only a certain number of people that were able to come into the classes and learn with me. It was only people that were here in Chiang Mai because I was hanging posters around Chiang Mai and the word was spreading around Chiang Mai, around the tourists and stuff. But when I was walking down the street, I, I noticed everybody had their eyes in their phones and people were glued to their electronic devices. And 
I was like, I've got to figure out a way to get the Buddhist teachings into those electronic devices. Because if I don't get into those electronic devices, that's where everyone's attention is. So let me figure out how to get into those. And if I can figure that out, then people will have better access and more easy access to the Buddhist teachings. So all of these things have come together in this life and allowed me to do the things that I'm doing now. And teacher, when did you realize that uh, money, because the vast amount of money you're making per year, you said 800,000 to a million dollars a year. When did you realize that money doesn't equal happiness because now you are an aesthetic and you gave that up? Yeah. So as I was making all this money and the bank account was growing and I was sharing with charities and also, you know, being indulgent and absorbed in a central desire, I was realizing that the more money I was spending, it wasn't leading to any more happiness. It was actually leading to more craving. The more that I would acquire, the more I would spend. The more I would spend, the more that I wanted more. But it, I didn't see it as a problem then. I just saw it as that was the way that we're all kind of taught that you need to make a lot of money and you enjoy it. But then in 2017, 2018, I had already moved to Thailand by that point. I moved to Thailand in 2015. And I actually started a business here in Thailand as well that became very successful and made a lot of money as well. And I started buying all kinds of expensive things here and indulging in all kinds of things here. But yet the mind was still highly discontent. And around 2017, 2018, I started to not really work as much. I started bringing the work down. The money wasn't coming in. And I just started realizing that as long as I keep chasing after this money, that it's just going to be more money, more money, more money. The mind's just going to keep craving more and more money. So I started directing my attention inward to solving this problem of the discontent mind. And I realized that just chasing after money isn't going to solve the problem of the discontent mind because the problem wasn't that I didn't have enough money because at that time I had a lot of money. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that the mind was discontent and I had to figure out why that was happening. And once I started understanding why the mind was discontent, then I could start focusing on that and addressing that. It wasn't a problem with money because I'd already experienced that through a large portion of my life. There was one time where I was employed, I was making $150,000 a year. There was a time in my business where I was making dollars $500,000 a year. Out of the million, I was putting $500,000 in my pocket. So the problem wasn't money. There was plenty of money there, but the mind was still discontent. So once I realized and discovered that the real problem was the craving, that's where I could start focusing on the real problem. And I realized that I really didn't need as much money that I could actually bring my life down to a minimum and focus on solving what we call the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots. And by addressing the real problems, that's where the mind then started experiencing more peacefulness. And I ultimately got off all the medications and everything else that was told to me about how my brain was defective. I realized that that wasn't true, that it was just that the mind was untrained and I didn't understand these natural laws of existence. And as soon as I started understanding them and I started making wise decisions, then the mind gained more and more stability and eliminated discontentedness. In a way, teacher, this sounds similar to 
Gautama Buddha's story. He was a prince. Now, the way I understand it, the businesses that you spoke of, the one in Washington, D.C., and the one in Thailand, they no longer exist. You gave those up, and you're an aesthetic now, right, working on on donations. Right. When I was moving from America to Thailand, it was about a seven-year plan that I had to move to Thailand. And I started that around 2007, 2008, and then I didn't move until 2015. But when I realized I was leaving, I put the businesses out for sale. And I had a business broker who was uh, working to sell the businesses. And I had an offer of a million dollars to purchase the, the company. And I entertained that and I talked to the people, very nice, lovely people. But I just felt like the business that I created, it wasn't really a business to me. It was a service. It was a public service that we were offering the people of Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area for people who were really deep in stress and anxiety to be able to come and experience these massage treatments in order to improve the health of their body and their mind. And we were offering this service of educating people about Thai massage, Thai culture, and Buddhism. And I felt like if I sold the company to an investor, that it wasn't going to have the same feeling. It wasn't going to have the same importance in terms of the way that I operated the company, that I didn't operate it as a company, I operated as a public service. And I felt like that an investor was going to maybe not be able to fulfill that in the same way. So I ended up turning down the $1 million and just closing the businesses and walking away. I ultimately tried to give the company to the employees and say, here, you guys can have it. You know, you can just have the company. But I didn't realize at the time how much work and how much effort it really is to run the company because it was just so easy to me because I grew up with it. I started it in 2003. Here it was 2015. And I just gradually brought on all the skills and the people that I needed in order to help this company be successful. So when I kind of let people run the company for a while, they kept telling me how difficult it was and how hard it was. And I couldn't understand it because to me it was just so easy. But I ultimately turned down the $1 million, even though I didn't have $1 million in my account ever. I just felt like that money isn't what I was ultimately interested in. I was interested in having this company continue with the same feeling and the same mode of operation is what I did when I was actually running the company. So the money wasn't important to me. So I just turned away from it, closed the businesses, ultimately came here to Thailand thinking that I was not going to work anymore. But within three weeks of being here, I started another company. And that company slowly started becoming successful financially. And this company, once again, uh, within three years, we started making about 600,000 US dollars within about a three year period. And then, you know, that got to a point where it wasn't sustainable anymore. And I needed to shut that company down as well. And now I don't have any businesses. I don't operate any businesses. I don't consider myself a businessman at all. Instead, I just live based on any kind of offerings or donations that are given to me. And because of my business life, I'm fortunate that I was able to make the decision to save enough money that I did something like purchase the house that I live in. And now my wife and me, we don't have a mortgage. We don't have to pay a monthly fee. All we have to pay is electric and water. 
which is very helpful because I don't need it that much donations in order to sustain my life. I only need food, water, clothing, a little bit for the shelter, you know, and helping my wife to pay electric and water, things like that, and then any kind of medical care because I don't spend money to go out and do things like party or buy expensive clothes or buy expensive cars or things like this. I actually don't have anything in my name anymore. The house is in my wife's name. The car is, she bought it. It's in her name. She's got a loan on it that she pays. She has a motorbike that's in her name. I still have one motorbike that's in my name that was paid for uh, with the old uh, money. If I could put that into my wife's name easily without having to pay money to do it, I would just put it in her name uh, because I'm not interested in holding on to any of this stuff. So I just live very peacefully, very humbly in my room here. I sleep on the floor. Uh, My wife and my son, they sleep in their room. And uh, I just share these teachings. And that's all that I focus on is sharing these teachings with whoever's interested in learning and practicing them. I've seen the way you live in Thailand, teacher David. It's very humble. Um, I was wondering, now, since you grew up in in America and, and you decide now to live in Thailand, well, it's go, go, go in America. And, and do you consider Thailand to just be more peaceful? Is it like heaven on earth there? Why did you choose to stay there? when you were born American? There's multiple reasons why I ultimately moved to Thailand, but to answer a couple of your questions that you said originally, then we'll come back to this one, is yes, America's go, 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 and Thailand's not that way at all. One of the things I had to do when I came to Thailand is I had to train myself how to rest, how to relax. I didn't know how to do that because I was always go, 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 go in America. So I actually had to learn how to relax. I had to learn how to rest. I didn't know how to just sit on the couch and do nothing for an hour or two hours or just don't do anything all day. Just stay in the house and just relax. It was always go, 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 go in America. So that's something that I had to learn and train the mind how to do. The reason why, multiple reasons why I ultimately came to Thailand, one of the primary reasons why is that by living in Thailand, people who are interested in learning these teachings, anybody and everybody can come here in terms of visa, where you know people from Egypt or South America or any other part of the world can easily come into Thailand and live here for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or however long and learn these teachings. They can readily get access to me and all the teachings that are here. Whereas if I lived in America, that wouldn't be the case because of the tight visa challenges. People from all over the world wouldn't be able to come to America and actually learn these teachings. So one of the primary reasons to be here and share these teachings from Thailand is that everybody in the entire world can come here and actually learn and have access to these teachings. The city that I live in, in the northern part of Thailand, it's called Chiang Mai. It's a tourist city. It's an international city. There's a lot of people who come and go from all over the world. So I meet people from France, from Germany, from Italy, from Russia, from India, from Pakistan, from Iraq, from Egypt, from Afghanistan, from South America, from America, from Canada, from the UK, Australia, Japan, China, you name it. You know, there's people from all over the world here that 
have access and ability to learn these teachings. And then once they learn them, they can go back to their home country and they can continue to learn online because I have all of these available options for people to learn online. So that's one of the primary reasons. Some other reasons are that being here in Thailand, they understand the Buddhist teachings quite well. So there's a lot of support here in terms of being able to share these teachings. Where in America, I didn't necessarily receive that same support. When I was trying to share a certain amount of these teachings in America, a lot of people were displeased with that and were looking for ways to kind of shut down what I was doing. So I didn't really get the support that I needed there. So here in Thailand, they understand the Buddhist teachings that they're meant to help all of humanity and that it will liberate the mind where it no longer experiences any discontentedness or suffering and that anybody who's doing this type of work is doing it out of loving kindness and compassion for others, not for any other reason in terms of fame or fortune or anything like this, because Buddhist teachers will typically live a very basic, meager life. So the Thai people here understand that and provide the support for that. And I know that going through an entire lifetime of sharing these teachings and more and more people all over the world becoming more and more enlightened that these teachings are going to need to continue. And Thai people will be willing and interested to see them continue. And it's not just the Thai people, but by the time I actually die, there'll be lots of people from all over the world that will have learned these teachings and have become more and more enlightened. So there will be people all over the world that will be able to understand these teachings and ensure they continue in the world. But Thailand, I think, will always be kind of a home base for these teachings. It's the kingdom of Thailand. This is the kingdom where one can set up in such a way that people can come and learn, experience heaven on earth, because Thailand is very peaceful. So by people coming here and learning here, not only are they learning and have access to learn, but then they actually are surrounded by millions and millions of people who are also practicing the teachings. So while you're in a classroom with me learning the teachings, and we go out into the community and you can see how people are practicing the teachings, you can more easily kind of assimilate the teachings in your own life and in your own practice because you see how other people are practicing them. Where in America, it's just teaching the teachings in a classroom and then going outside and you're not interacting necessarily with a lot of people that are practicing the teachings. So it's very difficult to see how to practice them in day-to-day life. But here in Thailand, you can see that. Whether you go to restaurants or malls or other venues, you can experience how people practice these teachings on a day-by-day basis. And this enhances your learning because you're surrounded by people who are actually practicing at the same time that you're learning with me. Now, Teacher David, what, what is your goal as a teacher? I've seen, I've seen a post by you, um, and it's described as like a planet of enlightened beings. Um, could you share something on that? Sure. So what my goal is, is over the next 45 years or so, or until I die, that I have at least shared these teachings with enough people that there's a large collection of enlightened beings by the time that I die, and that the teachings have been preserved in written format, in video format, in podcast, and other ways that I preserve the teachings, so that once I die, there'll be lots of people that can continue the teachings forward from there. 
where we're at over the last 2,500 years is that the teachings of Gautama Buddha, the teachings of Jesus Christ have gradually declined in the world and there's less and less people that understand them because of the universal truth of impermanence. And what I'm interested in doing is bringing these teachings into the world in a way that restores the understanding of Gautama Buddha's teachings, but people can also understand the connection between Gautama Buddha's teachings and Jesus Christ's teachings, that these things aren't two separate things, that they're ultimately the same thing, as well as Muslim teachings, as well as Hindu teachings and Jainism and Judaism and all these other teachings around the world. These are all teachings that are sharing the natural laws of existence. When I look across all of these teachings, I feel like Gautama Buddha got it the most right, the most clear in terms of him laying out a very clear path because he was fully perfectly enlightened where Jesus Christ in his previous existence was not quite fully enlightened. That's why he needed to be reborn. So by me sharing these teachings in a way that restores them to the way that the Buddha shared them during his lifetime and helping people see that we don't have to be at odds with each other. It doesn't have to be Christian and Buddhist and Hindu and Muslims all kind of arguing over who's right and who's wrong. We can say, you know what? They're all right. They're all right. They're just explaining it in a different way. And when we understand this commonality between all these different traditions, then we can all come to understand these same teachings in a very clear, very precise way. And by me doing this over the rest of my life and restoring these teachings in a way that can be preserved, which didn't happen before because the technology wasn't there, by preserving them in written and audio and video format, and then having lots of enlightened beings who understand them in their own mind. Now, when I die, these teachings are available in all these different formats, and there's plenty of people that can guide others in how to experience enlightenment. And gradually over time, this accumulates into more and more and more people in the world experiencing enlightenment where we ultimately can create heaven on earth. It's not that there's going to be a certain being that comes back and snaps their finger and heaven on earth is created. This actually has to be accomplished by all of us individually, choosing to learn and practice, eliminating the pollution of our mind, now practicing the wholesome qualities of mind, and then gradually over time, more and more beings in the world are practicing the wholesomeness, the wholesome qualities, and now we're all making wiser and wiser decisions. But in order for us to do that, we have to be unattached to what other people are doing. Sometimes when there's a big kind of grassroots effort, people think that we kind of have to everybody get in the same room, 7.5 billion people get in the same room and kind of agree, okay, we're all going to do this. But we actually don't have to do that. We can just gradually, slowly, as people choose to step forward and learn these teachings, we can gradually learn. So a student who's learning with me, maybe a single mom or a single dad or a couple or uh, somebody who's learning and becomes more and more enlightened, when they learn the truth, they're going to guide their children in a way that they're going to share this truth with them. And now their children learn and their children learn and their children learn. Or if a single person who doesn't have a significant other learns when they go out into the workforce or they have friends or family and they're starting to interact with others, they're going to interact in an enlightened way. And now those 
ways of being and the ways of thinking are going to actually be shared just through what we might say osmosis or just kind of gradually move throughout the world. It's not that we have to come up with a concerted plan or a step-by-step, you know, point one, point two, point three, and kind of plot this out of exactly how to create this heaven on earth. It will actually automatically get created as people choose to pull the teachings into their life. Because the more that you learn the teachings, you practice the teachings, and you see that they're improving the condition of your mind, then you will have a natural tendency to learn more, to practice more. And then when people ask you, you know, why is your mind always peaceful? I never see you angry. I never see you frustrated. I never even see you annoyed. How does that happen? You're like, oh, well, here's the teachings. Here's how I did it. And then gradually, slowly but surely, over multiple generations, a thousand years, these teachings will gradually evolve in the world and be shared in wider and wider audiences. One of the challenges with Gautama Buddha and Jesus Christ is not only did they not have the technology to capture the teachings and preserve them themselves during their lifetime, but they also didn't have anybody who succeeded them. They didn't leave anybody that says, okay, this person is now going to continue my teachings forward. And that is kind of a an indication that teachings are going to decline because there's nobody there to kind of pick up the ball and continue to move it forward. So my son has expressed a, a very strong interest in continuing to share these teachings in the world after I die. And our plan is, is that over the next thousand years that as you know, I've had a child, as my son has children, as this continues, that each child on their own can choose to carry these teachings forward over the next thousand years, as well as all the enlightened beings who are learning with us as students. We all as a community can share these teachings with anybody who chooses to decide to learn. And this is how slowly but surely these teachings will evolve in the world and be shared in wider and wider audiences and be more impactful to help create what someone might consider heaven on earth. That's amazing, Venerable Sir. What a beautiful thing. Thank you for everything that you do. Now, how would someone go about supporting you? How do we support the teachings in the world? The biggest way to support the teachings in the world is to learn, reflect, and to practice them. By you bringing the teachings into your life, it's going to improve your life. It's going to improve the life of the people around you, and it's going to improve all of humanity because you're going to be causing less harm in the world. So the number one thing is, is if you're choosing to learn, reflect, and practice the teachings, this is wonderful for you, for those close to you, and all of humanity. Then as you're experiencing improvement and benefit to the condition of your mind and condition of your life, you'll understand that part of the practice is to practice generosity and creating merit. And the way that you practice generosity is you give and share your time, effort, energy, and resources in order to train your mind to let go and not to have craving and hold on to things so tightly. And one of the ways that you can practice generosity is not only with the people around you, is you can also create what's called merit, which is sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources to help these teachings continue in the world by 
sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources to support these teachings coming into the world more and more. So you might decide to offer donations of your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources towards various projects or towards certain efforts or certain things that we need in order to bring these teachings into the world. Like we have retreats or, you know, if you are interested in buying me lunch or dinner or something like this, because I don't have a business anymore. I don't operate a career or a business in order to make any profit. I'm only interested in sustaining my life. So I'm living in a way that my benefit and the thing that I give to the world is these teachings. And I just give and give and give and give and practice generosity. And then at some point, if you feel that you would like to practice generosity as well and practice in a way that you can provide something for me in terms of time, effort, energy, or resources to bring these teachings into the world, then you can do that by contacting me. You can go on our website and look at the link for support us. There's links there where you can provide donations and understand that anything that you give in terms of generosity, it's going to come right back to you because I'm not interested in collecting a bunch of money in a bank account because I've already had that. I've already done that. I've already driven, you know, a hundred thousand dollar car and I've already had three, four, five, eight different motorcycles. I've already lived in multiple houses and had swimming pools and, you know, things like this. I've already eaten at restaurants where it was three, $400 for one meal just for me. You know, I've done all these things and I'm not interested in that anymore. So now I eat food that costs, you know, $2 a meal and just as content, actually more content, more peaceful eating that than I was eating the $300 meal. So anything that you give in terms of your time, effort, energy, or resources is going to support me and support the technology, support the resources that I need to bring these teachings to you. So when you're contributing something to me in terms of time, effort, energy, or resources, it's not actually contributing it to me necessarily. It's actually contributing it to our community. So when you make an offering to me, it's actually making an offering to our community so that we can grow our community and grow the resources that we offer the world so that people can then come into our community and benefit from free books and free audiobooks and free videos and free classes and uh, free retreats and all of these things. But in order for all these things to be free, we all need to be able to practice generosity and be also willing to give. If nobody ever gave and we just take, 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 then there's not going to be resources available for us to learn and practice with. So the way that you can support, number one, is learn and practice the teachings. But then as you're observing the benefits and you know that you would like to make these teachings available for others, find ways to practice generosity and bring these teachings into the world more and more. It's a very humble answer, Teacher David. You're not interested in, in collecting money for for yourself, so to speak. Like um, you were just saying, bring the teachings into the world. You're, you're more focused on that in your answer, and it's obvious to me. But I was wondering, you still need food, water, clothing, medical care to sustain your life. Now, the way the way I, I look at these teachings, I've been studying with you for, for a while now. Um, we train the mind here. We're training the mind. Now, 
if I wanted a gym membership to go like train the body, you know, they're like $50, $100 a month or something like this. But uh, I mean, you're available um, just like a life coach, but you're free. You do you do Zooms with, with private private sessions for anybody in the world that wants to do it. You have a bit.ly calendar right there, available to all, all beings. You haven't skipped a beat on any of these classes, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday, always here. And you're always teaching. And, and the way I understand it, the way of practice on the Eightfold Path is generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. So um, just, you know, donation-wise, I mean, is that true? Is that, is that, is that what, something that you need at the moment? Uh, are you getting enough right now in donations for food, water, clothing, and your medical supplies? So in order to support the things that I do here, I can live off of about 1500 to $2,000 a month. I've arranged my life to be able to live with just that. Where in the past, when I was in business, I was making sixty dollars to $80,000 a month. But now I've brought all the expenses down. I don't do the things that I used to do. I don't have the craving to go out and you know, eat at a restaurant for $300 a meal. I don't wear shoes that cost two or $300 for a pair of shoes. I don't wear jeans that cost two or $300. I don't wear shirts that wear cost two or $300. I just wear basic, simple clothing. This is a $5 shirt. I wear $5 pants. The shoes that I wear cost about 30 or $40. And I just live very simply like that. So I've brought my expenses down to about 1500 to $2,000 a month. And most months, you know, I'm right around, you know, $1,200. Some months are down to about $1,000 a month. Some months are up to about $1,500. And the reason why I can live at $1,500 to $2,000 a month is because I did things in the business world like bought this house and now I don't have to pay a mortgage. I also have a wife who she works and she pays for the water and electric bill like all the time. Like even though I say I like to try to help her, I haven't paid water and electric for this house for probably almost a year because she pays for that. She also pays for a lot of my food. So there's times where she comes home and she's bought food for me and allows me to eat and things like this. So to live more comfortably, it would be, you know, around 1500 to 2000 a month is what it would take to ensure that things are comfortable. But, you know, I, I make it, you know, if the donations are only $1,000 a month and, you know, I'll eat, you know, a lot of, uh, what do they call it? You guys call it cup of noodles. Here we call it mamas, you know, like a dehydrated soup. You know, I only eat twice a day. Uh, sometimes I'll eat once a day. Uh, in order to bring the food down so that I don't eat too much. That's how I get by. You know, I've trained my son that he doesn't get toys. He doesn't get to live, you know, a lavish lifestyle like he did before when I was making lots of money. So my wife, my son, and myself, we all had to train ourselves to bring our craving down so that we're not spending money. The only thing that I spend money on is food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, my son's school, and then, you know, just a, a few little things here and there in terms of I'll take my son to a movie or I'll take him to play mini golf every once in a while. But things here in Thailand are very inexpensive. So that's 
one of the reasons why I can live at such a low amount of of funds. So while I'm very appreciative of all the donations that I get, it's not quite enough to live in that $1,500 to $2,000 range, which is really needed to ensure that things are taken care of in an easy way. Now, um, it, it is the way to support you, is that just on BuddhaDailyWisdom.com? There's a link right there. And is it set up for, can someone, if they wanted to practice generosity, who's learning these teachings from you, you know, every week or getting these private um, sessions, uh, is there a way to set up like a recurring donation? Because if you're helping us train our mind, what I was trying to say earlier is, you know, gym memberships, we train the body, you know, they're paid on a monthly basis. I don't see the difference in training the mind, uh, you know, in regards to, you know, a little monthly donation, we can pick the amount. So it's pretty fair. Is there a way to set up like a recurring donation like that? If, we, if we're really lis- uh, learning from you and, and taking advantage of these teachings, yeah, I have it set up where you can do single donations, you know, just at your own free will. And then also you can set it up where it's a recurring, where it's a monthly donation of $5 or 15 or 25 and it increments up from there. So you can choose to do that if you like. It's not something I expect. It's not something I require. It's not something that I ask for. You'll never hear me ask in class to donate anything to me. But If you do, I'm always very appreciative and I have it set up so that you can. Initially, when I first started sharing these teachings here in Chiang Mai, students were asking to give me donations and I wouldn't take donations because at that time I still had some money in the bank. And then I ultimately got to a point where I had exhausted all those resources and I didn't have money to eat. And there was a student, a girl who came to to learn with me and she was like the 20th person who asked me, you know, can I give you a donation? And I finally just said, yes, you can give me a donation. That was a really difficult thing for me to do because I wasn't used to living that way. I was used to living as a business person. So just like Gautama Buddha was in the forest and he was essentially starving himself and a girl came and offered him rice and he had that realization where he reluctantly accepted the rice. I was in that same situation where you know, I was kind of essentially starving myself and I had to reluctantly accept this donation. I wasn't really interested in doing it, but I knew that I had to if I was going to sustain this life. So I accepted that donation and then slowly but surely other people asked the same thing. And there were people from overseas asking to give me donations and I didn't have a way to do that. So ultimately I had to set that up around 2020, I think it was. The year 2020 is when I set up the ability for people to provide donations. So it's there on the website under buddhadailywisdom.com. You can go to support us and you'll see the ability to share a donation if that's something you'd like to do. All right, thank you, teacher. I have one last question before we go back to Bossom for questions on Zoom, and then there's several that have popped up on uh, Facebook. Um, but this last question I have for you, sir, uh, re- is related to practice. Um, and I can kind of put it in an analogy. For example, um, you know, if we're learning from you, uh, at what point would you say it's okay to, you know, instead of like, if someone has concern about, you know, missing classes or anything like that, at what point do you think 
a student has learned enough from you where they can just come back, check in as they please, kind of like um, a, a, a child or a young adult that went off to college. Like, um, you know, is it okay to like, you know, instead of doing everything live or, or just be out in the world and practicing what they've already learned, right? And then they come back, see their parents on the weekend to do the laundry. At what point do you think students like have learned enough to do something like that? Just come back in and, you know, they and just do what they learned already out in the world, practicing what they know, and then just come back to check in once in a while. Yeah, everybody's going to be a little bit different. It's There's not kind of like one standard set answer to that because everybody starting at a different place in terms of the amount of pollution that's in the mind and people progress at different paces in terms of what they are able to learn and practice and the amount of time they can devote to it. So each person has to make the decision for themselves. As those of you guys that have been studying with me for any amount of time knows, I don't take attendance in class. I don't keep records of what classes you attend and what classes you don't. When I was in the business world and we were giving out certificates for different classes and we were doing professional career training, we had to keep track of all that stuff. And that was wonderful that I don't have to do that anymore because it's all based on your individual interests and your goals. So you learn, you progress, you develop your wisdom, you start observing your practice. And if you feel like, you know, you're at a point where you don't need to attend class or you don't need to be involved in the podcast or watching the videos as much, it's totally up to you. But you should be able to observe that you're at least in that first or second stage of enlightenment, I would say. At the first stage of enlightenment, it's like being at base camp at Mount Everest. There's a whole lot of work to get to base camp at Mount Everest. You have to learn all the tents and boots and mountaineering supplies and all the different foods and how to tie knots and ropes and backpacks to carry and all these different things. But ultimately, if you make your way to base camp at Mount Everest, you can get to the summit from there, but there's still a lot of planning and you have to be really diligent in making some wise decisions to get to the summit of Mount Everest. But at least you've got everything you need at base camp. So base camp is like the first stage of enlightenment. So if somebody can at least get to the first stage of enlightenment from there, they may not attend classes as regularly because they would have had to attend a lot of the classes and been really deeply investigating the teachings just to get to the first stage of enlightenment, just to be able to get to base camp. They would have had to done a lot of that. But then they should have everything that they need in order to progress from there. And they have enough of a relationship where they can come back and get help as they need with personal guidance or private messages or coming to the retreats regularly and things like this. And then also the thing to think about is as you make your way to that first and second stage of enlightenment and ultimately to enlightenment, your practice ultimately starts to evolve where initially your practice is all about your own mind, training your own mind and ensuring you understand what it takes to get to that first and second stage and beyond to actually get to enlightenment in the fourth stage of enlightenment. As you start experiencing those beginning stages of enlightenment, first, second, third stage of enlightenment, ultimately enlightenment itself at the fourth stage, your practice kind of starts to evolve a bit. 
that it's not really just about you anymore. It's about you also helping others. So while you might not attend classes regularly, you might show up to an annual retreat or you might participate in fundraising for an annual retreat or you might participate in uh, spreading invitations to an annual retreat or something like that. So you start kind of evolving your practice and order for you to have gotten to the first or second stage of enlightenment, there would have been a lot of people that were helping you to get to that point. Yes, your teacher, but other members of the community too. And by that point, you're practicing generosity so well that your practice evolves, that you're now looking at ways to give back. And you also have developed loving kindness and compassion so well that you're also interested in giving back for those reasons as well. So you'll start to observe for yourself, everybody is different, but once you start moving the mind into that first and second stage of enlightenment, you'll start to observe how your practice evolves a bit and it's less about your own practice and more about how can I find ways for these teachings to be accessible to others. Well, uh, Onzuma, Jen writes, what helped you to persist in college to get your degree? Yeah, so it was so hard in college. What kind of motivated me is I wasn't interested in failing. I was the first person in my family that had gone away to college. Other people had the opportunity, but they didn't follow through. My grandparents worked very basic jobs. My grandmother was an operator back when there used to be operators, you know, switchboard operator. And my grandfather was an electrician. Uh, They had saved a little bit of money all through their life so that their daughter, which was my mom, could go to college. But she only went for like a couple of months and, you know, decided not to go. That money was then supposed to be for my uncle. He didn't go. It was supposed to be for my sister. She didn't go. So I was the last one. And I was to be the first person, if I got my degree, that would be the first person in the family to get a college degree. So I wasn't interested in failing. And I wasn't interested in having this money that my grandparents saved go to waste because they were paying for my tuition and they were paying for my room and my board as well at the college, but I still had to work through college. I was still working at different jobs in order to pay for other things that I needed as part of my life. And I wasn't interested in failing. So even when I went through psychosis and very dramatic experiences in the hospitals and having to leave college for a semester and over the summer, I was determined to get back to college and finish out my degree because I wasn't interested in failing and seeing all of this go to waste. A question from Anel, she writes, Teacher David, would you please describe how the meaning of marriage evolved for you and how you may have managed some of the most difficult periods? What is your personal definition of marriage since you choose to remain in such relationships? Sure. So when I was growing up, from the age of 17, I ended up having girlfriends that were all Asian from Indonesia, from Korea, from Philippines, from Myanmar or Burma, from Thailand, different places like this, Vietnamese. And um, earlier in my life, I actually had my very first girlfriend. She actually died. She was pregnant with a baby when I was about 15 or 16 years old. She was about a month or two pregnant and she ended up dying, which sent me into a really deep depression. So I started dating Asian people for one reason or another, and I started observing their families. Even before I went to Thailand the first time, I started observing how Asian people's families were very different than what I grew up with. And 
by the time I was about 27 years old, I met a Thai person and I married this person, not the wife that I'm with now, but my first wife. And at that time, I really didn't put a whole lot of thought into marriage. It was just like, okay, this girl that I'm with, she doesn't have a visa. She's living with me. She can easily get thrown out of this country. Bad things can happen for her. She doesn't have anything. All she has is two suitcases. Let me marry her and this will be good for her. And let's just see where things go. I wasn't really thinking long term about, is this a good partner for me long term? And when we got married, I actually woke up the next day like, oh, my goodness, what did I do? Like, I made a huge mistake. And I really felt really bad about what I did, but I stayed in the marriage and it was a real struggle. And we were married for five years. And the more I spent time with this lady, who was a very lovely lady, but both of us weren't compatible. We just weren't in the right mindset to be husband and wife. We were too young. We didn't understand each other. I didn't have what I needed. She didn't have what she needed. But I stayed in the marriage because I thought that once you got married, you had to stay married for the rest of your life. And I really struggled for five years in that marriage, holding on and holding on and holding on and trying to fix her and trying to get her to be the kind of wife that I wanted. And I realized that she couldn't do that, that that was wrong of me, that I can't change her to be the kind of wife that I want. She needs to be the person that she needs to be. And I need to be the person that I need to be. And we ultimately ended up getting a divorce. But I learned a tremendous amount through the whole experience, a lot more than what I'm explaining here. And we, you know, had our legal marriage and then we had our legal divorce and then about three years, four years after that, I ended up marrying my current wife, who I'm, who I'm with now. And her and I did things very differently as we took our time and we dated for a long time and we lived together for three years. And I asked her a whole lot of questions along the way about the type of life that she was planning to live long term to decide if this was an actual person that was more compatible with me. And the more time I spent with her, I realized that she was compatible. And this was the type of person that I was interested in being with. So we ended up getting legally married once again because she needed a visa to come back to America. She was living in America with me for three years, but then she got stuck in Thailand and she couldn't come back. So I had to marry her again in order to get or this person to get a visa. But I knew at that point it was the right person and I was marrying her for the right reasons. But had I not needed to get a visa for her, there was no reason for us to get legally married because legal marriage is really just a contract with the government and informing the government that you're married. And now when you inform the government that you're married, if you would like to separate, you have to inform the government that you're going to separate. But what I discovered is with the first wife, when we were dating, everything was great. We were living together. We weren't married. The relationship was wonderful. But when we got married, legally married with the government, then all the expectations from me and from her came in. And that's what actually led to a lot of pressure in the relationship. And then the same thing with my current wife is that when we were just living together, we were dating, the relationship in my eyes was perfect. Things were very light, very airy. Uh, we were together because we were cared about each other, because we were sharing with each other. We knew that either one of us could leave at any moment. 
Therefore, we weren't complacent in the relationship. We contributed to the relationship in a very different way. Once we got married, legally married, things changed slowly, but they changed where now I felt more stuck. I felt more controlled by this piece of paper, by this contract of being married. And ultimately in 2015, when we came to Thailand, we got legally divorced. Here in Thailand, you just go down to the government and you sign a piece of paper and you say, we're no longer married anymore. And if you would like to get married, you just go down to the government and you sign a piece of paper and you say, we're married. The ceremony is with your friends and your family, which is completely separate from the legal part. So after her and I legally divorced, our relationship actually got better. And now we live together and our relationship has never been better. And to me, two people that are in a relationship together where they're life partners for each other, from my experience and what I experienced, it's actually more peaceful or more conducive to not have that contract with the government that says we are married because in the situation where we aren't legally married, but we're choosing to be together as a couple, we end up participating in the relationship in a much more caring way and a much more sharing way in a way that we don't feel pressured or obligated or expectations from each other. Now, that was my experience. That doesn't mean everyone's going to have that same experience. There can be people that are legally married and just have an amazing time, an amazing experience, and that's better for them than not being married. Everybody's different. But for me, that was my experience that as soon as I got legally married, I felt like this pressure and this burden. So what we need to understand is that because of this universal truth of impermanence, that not everything is fixed and permanent, that different people are going to experience different things. We shouldn't think that everybody needs to be married, and we shouldn't expect that everyone who lives a life where they're in a relationship with life partners shouldn't be married or that everyone should be single or everyone should have children. This is all the mind craving permanence. What we need to come to is what I ultimately understood with my first wife is that I can't control this person and I shouldn't even try to control this person. That instead we should all just allow each other to make our own decisions and whatever we feel comfortable with, allow that to occur. So in the relationship that I have with my wife who will be together for the rest of our life, I'm sure of this, is we feel most comfortable not having a legal contract with the government and just choosing to live together because in that situation, we care about each other, we share with each other, and we're not complacent in our relationship. Where when we had this piece of paper and this government contract, I can't say for her, but I can say for myself, I became very complacent in the relationship because I knew that she couldn't leave unless there was a whole lot of things that happened in order for her to choose to leave. So there's kind of like this contract that's keeping two people bound together. But when we got rid of that and we're choosing to be together based on just our interest to care for each other and to share with each other, that's where our relationship really blossomed. And that's what's working for us. But again, everybody's going to be different. Well, since you described this marriage as a mistake, the question now is, what is the worst thing you have ever done in this life? Let me just share before I answer that question. I wouldn't consider the marriage that I had the first time a mistake, even though I kind of woke up with that thought when I first got married. 
after experiencing the whole relationship with my first wife, there was nothing about it that was a mistake. I learned a lot. I felt like it was a mistake at that moment, but there was an enormous amount of learning and wisdom that I gained from that whole experience. So I value and appreciate the fact that I went through that five or six year relationship uh, with her. So in terms of what is the most unwholesome thing that I've ever done? I would say the most unwholesome thing that I've ever done is I've done a lot of killing of animals because I used to work on a farm and I killed a lot of animals as part of that. And that was a very difficult thing for me to start doing as part of working at the farm. But I experienced the results of that and having done that. The teachings that you see and the resources that I share related to the Buddhist teachings, all of those things that you see that are unwholesome, I've done all of them except for kill a human being or rape an individual. I've never done either of those things and I never will. But the reason why I know all of those other things lead to unwholesome results is because I've done them all. Whether it's killing animals, whether it's stealing, whether it's sexual misconduct, whether it's lying, whether it's taking substances that cause heedlessness, all those different things that you see me writing about, all those things that you see me teaching about, all those things you just see me describing in classes about the difficulties and struggles if we do these unwise, unwholesome decisions, it's based on personal experience. So I've done everything and anything that you see me writing about and teaching about except killing a human being and raping somebody. I've never done either of those two things. But if you ask me, you know, what is the most unwholesome thing? I think killing animals. I had to kill goats and sheep and things like this as part of working on the farm. Well, it seems that your life have drastically changed from unwholesome to uh, to wholesome. So the question now is uh, when and why did you decide to walk this path or practice these teachings? So at different points in my life, I was kind of toying with doing wholesome things, but I didn't understand what that meant. So growing up as a child, I was interested in doing wholesome things, but ultimately did a lot of unwholesome things. When I started investigating all the different churches and different denominations of churches, I was interested in doing wholesome things, but I didn't know what that meant. When I went away to the group home as a juvenile, I was interested in doing wholesome things. I started learning how to do wholesome things, and I was surrounded by a lot of other people who were interested in doing wholesome things. But when I left that, I started getting back into the world and I was kind of left to my own devices and I wasn't maintaining that wholesomeness that I learned in that group home with the boys. So as I started spending more and more time around Asian people, I started observing how they were into more and more wholesome things and I just started doing more of the things that they were doing. But still, I was doing a lot of unwholesome things throughout my life. It wasn't until I was here in Thailand and specifically 2017, 2018, that I started having all these different experiences here in Thailand and that my mind became highly discontent, utterly discontent. And I ended up going back to the hospital and I was starting to have these psychotic breaks again, or at least the preliminary indications, the preliminary symptoms of that. And I was at the hospital and I was there with the doctor and two nurses, and the doctor said to me, you know, what would you like to do? You know, why are you here? And I explained to them why I was there and what I was experiencing and that I had all these experiences in America in the past. And she said to me, she said, well, what would you like to do? 
Would you like to do what you've done in the past or would you like to do something new? And I said, I would like to do something new. And she said, okay, don't worry. We'll take really good care of you. You know, you would like to do something new. We'll take really good care of you. And then they just walked out of the room. And I was there in the hospital room by myself and I didn't know what else to do. I was, I was struggling with these unwelcome thoughts and these emotions and things that were going through my mind and on the verge of this psychotic break. The only thing that I knew how to do was meditate. So I sat in the hospital room meditating and every once in a while the nurses would come in and check on me and they're like how you doing i'm like i'm doing fine and they're, they're like you're still would like to do something new right and i'm like yeah i'd like to do something new and they're like all right and they just left and as part of that initial discussion they asked me the symptoms that i was having have i ever been treated in a hospital for them and i said yes in america they said but have you ever been treated in a thai hospital for these symptoms and i said no and they said oh okay they said, would you like to do what you did in the past or would you like to try something new? And when I said something new, that's when they just left. They didn't offer me medication. They would have if I would have asked for it or if I would have said I want to do what I did in the past. What I said to the doctors, I said, well, what I'm doing in the past obviously wasn't working or else I wouldn't be here because I was 24 years into taking these psychotropic medications for the problems that I was having. So I knew that it wasn't working or else I wouldn't have been in that hospital after 24 years. It wasn't solving the problems. So when I said I would like to do something new and they walked out of the room, I didn't know to do anything else but meditate. So I started doing that. And then I started doing that more and more and more. And I got into the Buddhist teachings and I started learning the Buddhist teachings. And this is what solved all the discontentedness in the mind. And I no longer experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy. All of these discontent feelings and others were all eliminated through the Buddhist teachings. It wasn't through medication that did that. It was through training the mind. And this is how I know that through sharing these same teachings that other people can accomplish the same thing because there's nothing special or unique about me being able to use these teachings to solve the problem of my discontent mind. Your discontent mind is being caused by the exact same problems that was causing in my mind. It's craving anger and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. And once I discovered how to solve that in my own mind, now it's a matter of putting it into words, putting it into books, audiobooks, videos, podcasts, and other things so that you guys can learn these same techniques, these same teachings, and then you'll be able to experience the same results that I experienced. What was it like when you first started this path? Very difficult. It's a, it's a struggle. It's very difficult because the mind is holding on and all it knows is what it knows from the past. It only knows what you've been doing your whole life. And now you're kind of taking a 180 degree turn in a different direction, completely opposite of what you've been growing up with and what you've been told your whole life. Particularly if you're in a country like America or the UK or Australia, you know, we're taught in the Western world that what we're doing is so right and so wonderful and so great. And we're the best country in the world. We're the greatest country on earth. And we think that we've got it all figured out. And yet you come to a place like Thailand and you see that these people truly have it figured out because 
people walk around so peaceful and they're smiling and they all get along and they're so harmonious together. And you have to kind of let go of all that conditioning where your mind has been told that you've got things so figured out and you've got to take this 180 degree turn in an opposite direction. But you do that slowly. But I was doing it at a much more direct pace in a much more deliberate way of making this hard right turn instead of this gradual right turn. I was making this hard right turn and that was a real struggle because the mind was holding on so tightly. So being on this path and choosing to walk down this path, the mind is still wanting to hold on to all these things in the past. Even though you intellectually know those things are causing harm, they're causing your discontentedness, your mind still wants to hold on to them. And it's not until you train it and train it and train it, train it some more and train it some more and train it some more and then train it some more and you just keep training it and training it where it slowly, gradually is willing to let go that it then becomes almost enjoyable when your mind is letting go, where initially it's very difficult and hurts a lot. You feel like the pain you're going through is so unsurmountable and you just want to turn back and you want to go back in the direction that you came from because it's so painful to go in this new direction. But if you keep your eyes set on the goal and the objective, even though you know it's painful and your mind's not comfortable letting go, if you just have confidence in the Buddha, you have confidence in his teachings, you have confidence in the community, you have confidence in your teacher, and you have confidence in your ability to attain enlightenment, you can work through those struggles and difficulties and experience the results on the other side, which is beyond pleasure and pain. So uh, what advice do you have for someone who is uh, just starting uh, on this path? I would say take it slow. Don't try to do too much at one time. Just keep it very simple. Focus on the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, developing your meditation practice. This is what the first part of the group learning program is designed to help you with. So the first two, three, four months, it's really focused on the core teaching so that you can gradually ramp them up and bring them into your life. So do it gradually. Don't put a lot of pressure and stress on yourself to be perfect today because your mind's going to be holding on to all these things in the past. So don't put pressure on yourself to be perfect. And also be willing to let go. Don't be holding on to all the things that you think are so right and that are so correct because we oftentimes grow up thinking that what we're doing is so correct and so right. There's a certain amount of arrogance and ego around that. And our mind is like, hold on a second. This is so simple. You know, I thought life was much more complicated than this. Why is this so simple? And oftentimes the mind almost has a short circuit where it's like, hold on a second. (laughs) This doesn't make sense to me. You know, it makes sense to me to go, 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 to multitask, to acquire lots of wealth and money and, you know, have all these material possessions. You mean all that stuff isn't going to lead to peacefulness? It isn't going to lead to happiness? What are you talking about? 
this doesn't make sense to me. That's all I've ever known my whole life. And now you're telling me those things don't lead to peacefulness. So the mind oftentimes is going to want to hold on to these things. And the mind's almost going to short circuit itself. And when you experience that and you're having difficulties and you're not understanding, that's the time to ask questions. That's the time to investigate. That's time to reach out and have personal guidance or talk to some other members of the community and reach out and try to understand. Because if you enter into this path thinking that you already know everything, and then a week or two or three, you start realizing you're learning things that are completely opposite of everything you've been taught your whole life. And if what you are looking for is a path to confirm that everything you already know is the truth, that's not going to lead to your progress. That's not going to lead to evolving the mind if you're looking for something that's going to confirm what you already know is the truth. Because if your mind is experiencing discontentedness, you don't currently know the truth. Then your mind is still unawakened. It's still unenlightened. So if you're looking to just confirm what you already know, then you're not looking to evolve. You're not looking to progress. You're not looking to grow. So if you're in a situation where your teacher is sharing a whole lot of things that you've never heard before or that you don't understand or it doesn't quite compute or fit into your mind in the way that you think it should, that's actually a really good sign because what your teacher is sharing with you is beyond what you currently understand and you've got to work your way up towards understanding those things and the only way that you can understand them is to ask questions so wherever you find yourself confused or not understanding or feeling like you're just lost you just start asking questions and that's where by you asking questions and hearing the answers multiple times things can get more and more clear for you a question from Parikshit, he writes, Venerable teacher, how did you write so many books after 2018 only? Yeah, so I started writing the first book in 2018, and that was Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. That's the, the very first book. And I wrote that just based on all the teachings that I understood, and I, and I wrote it. And, of course, connecting it to the words of the Buddha, but then as I started sharing that book in the first year and a half, two years, I realized that certain language and certain word choices that I was using wasn't necessarily always connecting with the students. So I had to start modifying the way that I spoke about the words because the wisdom was in the mind, but I hadn't spoken it and kind of shared it with students in a very long time because I had stopped teaching in America in 2015. And I didn't understand the teachings back then the way I started understanding them in 2018. So for the first year and a half, two years, I was sharing this other book. And then somewhere in the beginning of 2021, after about three years of teaching with that first book, I realized that I needed to rewrite the book. And I needed to use the words that I had accumulated over three years realizing what words were really penetrating and helpful for students. So I rewrote the book and called that the words of the Buddha, the path to enlightenment, revealing the hidden, developing a life practice, the path that leads to enlightenment, volume one. And I rewrote that book with all the language that I knew was going to really work and be penetrating for the students. And then I started to write all those additional books from 2021 I wrote all those additional 12 books. So in one year, I wrote 13 books. 
that's how long it took me because the wisdom was already there. I was already practicing it day by day by day. I was already teaching it. I was already sharing it. So when I would sit down to write a book, it would just flow out of me, flow out of the mind and flow out of the fingers. It was actually pretty straightforward, even though it took me countless hours to write these books. I was able to do it in a one-year time frame because I'm not a businessman, because I'm not focused on a career. I'm not interested in profit. I'm not interested in marketing to gain a profit. I'm only interested in getting these teachings out into the hands and into the minds of students. So I was able to dedicate countless hours to sharing these books. So I would sometimes sleep only two hours a day or four hours a day. Sometimes I wouldn't sleep at all. I would go two or three days without sleeping and just write these books. And that's what it, I did for that period of time and making sure that I was able to capture these teachings in a way that connects with the students. And then the more that the students were learning these teachings, I used that as a feedback loop to see what areas of the books needed to be further expanded or clarified in order to ensure that the teachings are really penetrating for the student. So it took me, you know, kind of a, three years to figure out the right language to use uh, with that first book and with the teaching. And then it took me about a year to write the additional 13 books. A question from Chrissy. She writes, thank you, teacher David. What are some ways we as practitioners mm -hmm can help support you and your interests to share this message? That's similar to the question that Nick asked. In terms of the first thing is learning, reflecting, and practicing. The more that you do that and you dedicate yourself to progressing to enlightenment, that's going to only help you, those close to you, and all of humanity. And then beyond that, if you're interested in sharing your time, effort, energy, or resources to help me, you can. As I do different projects, you'll know about those projects. For example, when I was writing those books, there were students who helped me look up the references. And there was uh, two students who were doing that. And then there was uh, students who were proofreading the books as well. But now that project's over. The next thing with the books that I'm looking to do is I'm looking to create audiobooks. And I have the time and energy to do it, but I don't have the resources in terms of money it costs money to go to the sound studio and record the audiobook so i did that with the very very first book and now i would like to record audiobooks for all the other books and i have the sound studio here 10 minutes from my house that i can go there and record those books but i need a certain amount of resources to do that so all the books that are sold on amazon the money that amazon gives me I keep that money to pay for the audiobooks, to actually use that money to go record, but also donations that are given to me. If I'm able to get donations to the point where it's covering my basic living expenses of that $1,500 a month, that part where I said you know 2000 a month, that extra amount, that extra $500, gives me the ability to use those resources to create resources like audiobooks and other things that will be able to help you guys. So I can live in terms of sustaining my life off of $1,500 a month. But in terms of giving you guys the resources that you need in order to continue to learn and go to do things like record audiobooks, I need that extra amount of money to be able to support projects like 
the audiobooks and retreats and be able to travel and be able to come teach you guys in different things like that. So those are the kinds of things that are most helpful is to be able to support the projects that I'm involved in because by you supporting the projects with donations, then those resources come right back to you to be able to help you learn and continue to evolve on the path. And this is the way that the Buddha actually worked this out is that people who are sharing these teachings like ordained practitioners and myself, we don't have careers. We don't work in the business world. But instead, what we give you is we give you the teachings. And then that allows you to benefit from the teaching. So there's like this mutual support. You'll see this in the Buddhist teachings where he talks about this mutual support between aesthetics and household practitioners, that household practitioners are going out into the world, they're working, they're doing their job, they're making a certain amount of income, but then they're kind of sharing some of that with the aesthetics or the teachers so that we can then get deep into our practice and develop resources to share with the household practitioners. By us sharing teachings with the household practitioners, it helps them improve their life and evolve their mind and improve their life. And then as they do that, then they're more willing to share with their teacher. So there's this mutual support going back and forth between a teacher and their students. But it's not something that a teacher is asking for or requesting or requiring or anything like that. But instead, just students, as they choose and they have the ability, they can help by offering their time, effort, energy, and resources for various projects that we have to benefit you. Brexit writes, a would an Arahan teacher be able to know which of their students are unenlightened or they are in the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment? Yes, an enlightened being, an Arahan, is able to determine if others are enlightened or not. It's something that as you evolve your own mind and you understand what it takes to get to enlightenment yourself, you can see the qualities of enlightenment in other beings. And you can determine uh, whether other people are enlightened and you know what stages they are. But that's not something that you should aspire to do as an individual practitioner. But a teacher can actually observe that in their students as a way of helping them. It's not something that we kind of actively do or that we need to do. But in certain situations, if we have somebody that's living with us or is spending a lot of time with us several months, we can observe certain things about their practice. And what we're looking to do is just always help people get to arahantship or enlightenment. So rather than trying to figure out, is this person a stream enter or a once returner? Is this person a once returner or a or a non-returner. Instead, we're just seeing the qualities of the mind that aren't enlightened, and then we're just helping that person to remove those obstacles so that they can get to enlightenment. An enlightened being, an enlightened teacher, is less interested in classifying which individual stages of enlightenment their students are in, and more interested in just seeing everybody get to enlightenment. So wherever you see a student that is struggling or having difficulties with certain obstacles that is hindering them from experiencing enlightenment, a teacher would just help them to overcome those and get to enlightenment. This is one of the reasons why things like retreats and 
spending time with your teacher is really helpful because it's one thing to learn and understand these teachings in a classroom environment, but it's a whole other thing to go out to eat and go to a park and go travel or you know spend time side by side with your teacher because not that they're judging you or analyzing you or anything like this, but there's just certain things that are observed through your just normal way of being that a teacher can help you with more readily when you're in your natural environment than when you're in a classroom just asking questions. And this can actually be really helpful for you to spend time with your teacher. This is one of the reasons why during the lifetime of the Buddha, household practitioners would invite the Buddha to come stay with them for several days or weeks and stay in their house and live in their house with them. Um, And this is why even today that students will oftentimes invite their teacher to come stay with them for a few days or a week or two or what have you, or come live with their teacher for a few days or a few weeks or something like this, because that level of insight of spending time with your teacher and your teacher spending time with you, we get another level of insight into helping you to evolve your practice that you don't necessarily get when you're just in a classroom. Another question from Brexit, he writes, what was the effect of killing those animals? You said you faced the consequences. Would you tell some consequences? Sure. So at that farm, it was a very hostile environment. There was oftentimes fights and aggression because we were killing. And in, in, in order to kill, there has to be a certain amount of hatred or ill will or anger in the mind, that second poison. And because of that, you know, yes, we were killing animals, but we were also very aggressive and hostile towards each other as well, oftentimes fighting at the farm. And then as I progressed in life later on, I got to the point where I was very scared of dying myself and very fearful of dying myself because I had killed so much. And this fear had come back to me and I was very much afraid of, of actually dying. And I was in situations where multiple people tried to kill me at different times in my life. I was encountered in different situations where I could have very easily been killed, where guns were pointed to my head, where I was in fights, where people were actively attempting to kill me. There was actually a contract to kill me at one time. And there were people that were actually actively trying to kill me for a significant period of time. And this was all as a result of the choices that I was making throughout my life, but particularly also during that time where I was killing animals. I was killing, the decisions I was making was producing this fear in those animals. I was chasing them around. I had to grab them, I had to tie up their legs. I had to drag them into the barn. I had to slit their throat. We had to hang them upside down and drip the blood out of them. We had to skin them. We had to cut them with bandsaws, all of these things. It's all leaving impressions and conditioning in the mind. And later on in life, I ended up doing things that led to the same results is that people were chasing me. People were attempting to kill me. It produced a lot of fear in the mind. A question from Jan, she writes, Teacher David, who taught you to meditate? I actually had to learn myself. I don't have any teachers that have taught me anything that I write about, anything that I teach in these classes, my own practice. I had to learn all of this by myself because there wasn't anybody here to teach me. In Thailand, these teachings are taught in Thai. There's very few people that understand the teachings and are able to teach them in English. 
And if it's in English, it's not necessarily native English. It's kind of broken English. So everything that I share with you in terms of meditation or any of the other teachings are all things that I discovered on my own. Well, thanks, teacher. Let's go to Nick. Thank you, Basim. Yes, teacher. We have questions on both YouTube and Facebook. Let's start with YouTube. Susan writes, Dear teacher, you are an inspiration. If you did drugs or alcohol or had addictions, how did you stop? Most instructed humans have has no relief from suffering other than distractions. Yeah, so when I was 15 years old is when I started drinking alcohol. That was a time when my girlfriend died. She was the first woman that I was with and she was pregnant with our baby at the time and sent me into a deep depression. So I started drinking alcohol. I also started experimenting with LSD, marijuana, even had a little bit of crack cocaine at one time, kind of sprinkled into a marijuana joint. So the illicit drugs, I got away from those when I went away to that group home. But when I came out of the group home, I ended up going back to drinking alcohol kind of in my adult life. When I was traveling around as a consultant, we were really spoiled as 23, 24-year-old kids coming out of college. We were traveling first class. We had a American Express card that had an unlimited balance. We were living in corporate apartments. You know, we were we were just really spoiled. So I ended up started drinking alcohol again. And I would oftentimes drink on the weekends, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I lived in a party area in Washington, D.C., where literally a half a block from my front door, it was the whole strip of bars and nightclubs and pubs and stuff like that. And, you know, I could just crawl back home essentially. But I got to the point where I was drinking so much that I would spend a vast majority of the weekend over a toilet vomiting. And I didn't like the view that I was seeing on the weekends. I was just staring at a toilet for hours on end. And there was one particular weekend where I drank so much and I was vomiting so intensely that it was like the bile from the stomach, the stomach contents were coming out and it was heat, it was painful, it was like black stuff coming out of my stomach and I was vomiting and you know heaving. I couldn't even get up to go to uh, sit in the living room. I was just heaving over this toilet and I spoke to the sky and I said, you forsake me the first time and now I've forsaken you. And if you allow me to live, I will never drink again. And from that moment, I decided to not drink any more alcohol. And I felt like I had forsaken God at that point because I wasn't living up to what I was intended to do in this life. And I decided at the age of 27 to never go back to alcohol again. And I stopped drinking that day. And after that, I would still occasionally, you know, it took me a long time to get away from it, but I got away from it in terms of ensuring that I was away from it. But then at some point when I started spending time with my current wife, we would go back to nightclubs and she would drink, her friends would drink, or other people around us would drink, but I would always drink 7-Up or Sprite or Coke or water or things like this. And sometimes people would joke me and mock me and uh, things like this when we were at the nightclub, but it never bothered me. So this actually helped me to eliminate that personal existence view, that self-image or that self-identity of you know going out and drinking and being the drinker and the man and drinking whiskey. So when people were 
you know, joking me and mocking me and things like this for drinking water at a bar, I just smiled because I knew where that alcohol led and I wasn't interested in the hangover. I wasn't interested in throwing up. I wasn't interested in seeing the toilet anymore on the weekend. And I had so much more fun just not drinking and being sober. And sometimes I would be out at nightclubs and I would be dancing and having a good time and partying, you know, drinking my water. And people didn't know that I was drinking water. And sometimes people saw me having such a good time and they'd be like, what are you taking, man? Do you have any more of that stuff? Like, how can I get some of that stuff? And I was like, what do you mean water? You want to drink water? They're like, huh? Are you taking any pills? Like, you know, what are you smoking? I was like, I'm just having fun. I'm just high on life. And they're like, are you serious? You know, you've come out to a nightclub. You're not even taking drugs or any alcohol. I was like, no, just having fun. So you can actually enjoy a high in terms of enjoying life so much more without substances. And I realized that as I was aging, that substances were actually getting in the way of having a good time where oftentimes we think substances is what creates the good time. But when you get rid of all that stuff and you just enjoy life, you can actually have people who are into substances ask you, like, what are you taking, man? Like, I want some of that. Oh, okay, here's some water. Have some water. (laughs) Susan also writes, Dear teacher, have you been or wanted to become a monk? Would you consider yourself a monk? I'm definitely not a monk. I'm not ordained. At different times in my life, I thought I definitely would be a monk and I would need to be a monk. I actually traveled to a temple and asked them if I could ordain a really reputable temple here in Thailand. They agreed and they said I could ordain. But what I realized through that experience is that it was actually just a craving and a desire to ordain that once I looked at it logically, I realized that the best decision for me was to not ordain. Because in that situation, had I ordained at that time, my wife didn't have a job. My son was about six years old. And if I would have ordained, she would have had a a real struggle of raising this child, being unemployed and also not knowing how to raise this child. Now that I decided, what was that, three or four years ago, not to ordain and instead live in the house, I'm able to now share these teachings with my wife and my son, and it has really dramatically improved their life and in their relationship. Whereas if I went away on my own, then left them in suffering and in discontentedness, it would have been great for me that I would have ordained, but it wouldn't have been for them. So I realized that I was interested in eliminating suffering in the world not creating it. So by coming back to the home, even though my wife agreed that I could ordain, my son agreed I could ordain, the temple agreed. Once I went there and I I stayed for a couple of days, I realized through looking at this that the best decision was to go back home, share these teachings with my wife and my son, help them to build up their life. And now they're in a completely different situation than they were three or four years ago. So I've decided not to ordain. That's where I am right now. I'm not ordained now. And I feel that living these teachings in a household environment actually provides me a lot of wisdom that I can share with people like you. Whereas if I ordained, then I would understand that life really well and I could teach from that perspective. But I wouldn't have necessarily the wisdom of 
How do you have a relationship with a life partner and practice these teachings? How do you have a son and practice these teachings? How do you live in a neighborhood and around other household practitioners and still practice these teachings? How do you live a life as a household practitioner and practice these teachings? Because Gautama Buddha laid down the teachings very clearly of how to live an ordained life and how to get to enlightenment that way. And my goal was to share these teachings from a lifestyle of being a household practitioner and ensure that I lay down the teachings very clearly for household practitioners of how to get to enlightenment from living the life of a household practitioner. It's very interesting, Teacher David. Let's move over to the questions on Facebook. There's about 10. Bruce writes, hello, Teacher David and everyone. I hope you are all well. Teacher, what brought you to the teachings of the Buddha? Highly discontent mind. Very, very discontent mind. That's what brought me to the teachings of the Buddha. And I didn't have any other way to solve it. And, you know, it's the Buddhist teachings that solved it. It wasn't medication. It wasn't wealth. It wasn't drugs. It wasn't sex. It wasn't material possessions. It wasn't having amazing businesses and success that way. It was the Buddhist teachings that share with me how to train the mind and get to peacefulness. So it was ultimately those conditioned pleasant feelings, those conditioned painful feelings, those conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant that were the motivators to bring me into the teachings of the Buddha and not being interested to ever come back here and experience it ever again in the cycle of rebirth because I've already observe past lives and I saw all these different past lives. So I know that if I didn't eliminate discontentedness and get to enlightenment in this life, then I was just going to keep coming back and experiencing it all over again. And this life was miserable enough. Previous lives were miserable enough that I wasn't interested in experiencing again. So ultimately it was discontentedness and not being interested in coming back and experiencing it all over again. Amina writes, Good day, teacher, and thanks for this open session to ask you questions. Would would like to ask you if you ever had a moment when you had trouble staying dedicated to the Buddhist teachings? And if so, how did you return to be motivated again? Thank you. Absolutely. There's times where, you know, the mind was super motivated and energetic and, you know, moving down the path. And then there are times where there was more complacency and, you know, not as interested. So what I share in terms of those five hindrances last week, when I talked about the solutions of how to actually get out of complacency and move to the middle way where you can practice, that's the solution. So all these things that I'm teaching in terms of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, all those things, but also the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment and all of those things. I had to arise all of that wisdom and build up my practice to be practicing all of those things. So I had to overcome complacency at many different times. And it was discontentedness that ultimately motivated me on this path. But also when your mind gets complacent, that's where the discontentedness comes in. And that's once again, that motivator. But you can also get to a point on this path where maybe you're in that first or second stage of enlightenment and things are actually quite good and quite peaceful, but yet you're not enlightened yet. And the mind is still experiencing some residual discontentedness and the mind can become complacent 
because you can go like three months or six months without discontentedness. And it's like, ah, yeah, everything's all great. Everything's wonderful. And you kind of become complacent. But then, boom, something comes in and starts experiencing discontentedness. But it's usually short-lived and it's very insignificant that the mind can go right back to complacency again. And that's where I started thinking about the cycle of rebirth even more and more that even just experiencing that little marginal discontentedness every three months or every six months, it's still discontentedness. And that means the mind's still unenlightened and it means you're still going to be reborn. And I'm not interested in that. I wasn't interested in that. So what I taught about complacency and how to get out of complacency in terms of practicing the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, the enlightenment factor of joy, that's how to get out of complacency. And you got to just really put in the effort and stay dedicated and diligent, not allowing the mind to shrink back from the struggle. Pam has two questions. Let's start with the first. How does one cope with the events of the world currently, specifically COVID and the invasion of Ukraine? This is where the mind's going to be shaken up and experiencing discontentedness if you're craving for things to be a certain way in the world. When you don't understand the universal truth of impermanence and you don't understand discontentedness and that it's your own craving that is actually causing the mind to be discontent, then your mind's going to be shaken up with something like COVID or something like the war in Ukraine. Because what you need to understand is COVID is impermanent. And this COVID was caused by us. It was caused by the decisions that we're making in the human world. Same thing with the war. It's being caused by craving anger and ignorance. When you understand what the problems are in the human mind and that every human being is experiencing the same pollutions of mind and that all these unwholesome decisions that led to COVID and that led to the war, it's all because of what other people are doing and you can't control that. You can't control what's going on in Russia or Ukraine, but you can control your own mind and not allow it to crave for things to be a certain way and realize that this is all gamma. It's the results of our decisions. It's cause and effect. So as long as your mind is craving, desiring, yearning, longing for things in the world to be a certain way, When things don't happen the way you want, your mind's going to be shaken up. It's going to be discontent. So the way to get liberated from all of that is to train the mind in things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, so forth and so on, using the Eightfold Path and the meditation and everything else where you can let go of the world, not craving and yearning and longing for it to be a certain way, but understand that it is the way that it is because it's functioning through these natural laws of existence. See, the challenge that the unenlightened mind has is that it doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It doesn't understand these natural laws of existence. So when it sees something like COVID or a war happening, the mind's all shaken up because it doesn't understand these natural laws of existence. But when you understand the Buddhist teachings and the natural laws of existence, you know exactly why COVID happened. You know exactly why the war is happening. You understand these things in a detailed sense. And you also understand that you can't influence and change them. 
and that the only thing you can do is have discipline of your own mind and let go and not crave for the world to be a certain way. And by doing that, then you can be liberated from any discontentedness. It's not that you take joy in the fact of seeing the harm that's going on in the world, but you liberate your mind where your mind can remain peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy despite what's going on in the world. That's where you get to real liberation. Pam's second question, she asks, how do you deal with people who are unenlightened or unaware? Is it easier with people you don't know? But what about with friends or family members? So if people are around and they aren't practicing these teachings, I just have loving kindness and compassion for them that genuine interest in seeing them be well, which is loving kindness, and have compassion or concern for their misfortune. What other people say or do, it doesn't affect my mind. So someone can yell and scream, even though that doesn't really happen, but someone could yell and scream and at me and you know at this body, and I wouldn't be shaken up by it. I would just observe that, ah, this person is lacking wisdom. They're unfortunately practicing wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action. Their mind is still polluted. That's really unfortunate. I have nothing but concern for this person. But as long as they're in that state, I can't do anything to fix it. Only they can fix their own mind. So them yelling at me, it only harms them. It doesn't harm me. So if I allow my mind to get shaken up by it, then now I'm harmed by it. So when somebody is acting in a way that's unwholesome or disrespectful or arrogant or egotistical, I just see it for what it is, which is that person's lack of moral conduct. It's the lack of their mental discipline, and it's all coming from their lack of wisdom. I don't think about that in a judgmental way. I think about it as just true reality, that I was once like that as well. I also lacked wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. I caused all kinds of harm in the world at one time. And this person is still choosing to do that. And I'm just going to have loving kindness and compassion for them. And sometimes that means just ignoring it. Sometimes it means walking away from it. But in that situation, there's really nothing that I can do to fix that person because they have to fix themselves. Somebody else can't fix them. Earlier in class, teacher, you mentioned Catholicism. Parikh said has a question about that. He writes, Venerable teacher, what does baptized mean? So what people do in Christian communities, and I'm not sure about Muslim communities, I don't have a whole lot of background there, but in Christian communities, they will help you to kind of cleanse you by baptizing you. This is kind of an acknowledgement of your acceptance of Jesus Christ in your life. And it's an acceptance of God and they will usually use water, either you know sprinkle it or dunk you or somehow involve water as a sign of purity and kind of rebirth and kind of accepting Jesus Christ into your life. It's kind of an acknowledgement of being Christian. It's a ceremony. It's a rite. It's a ritual. It's not something that's required in order to get to enlightenment, but as part of the Christian teachings, they will oftentimes do that as kind of your entry point into the Christian faith. He has another question. He asks, how did you manage your work and spiritual life? Was it always easy? So when I was a business person, I was always putting everybody else first. 
this is why I didn't understand the teachings the way that I do now. That when I was in America and I was doing the things that I was doing, I was always active trying to help everybody else. But I was neglecting my own practice. I didn't even realize that I really needed to have a practice at that point. I was just busy helping employees, helping customers, helping students, you know, helping everybody else and just putting everything in everybody else. Because that's kind of what we're taught sometimes in some cultures is just to help everybody else. But when I disengaged and unplugged from America and came to Thailand, I was just here just myself. And I started to, of course, I opened the business like I talked about. But after about three years of that, I realized that I needed to start focusing on myself. And that's what I experienced in that hospital, that here I was running around all these years trying to help everybody else, but I wasn't helping myself. And when I started focusing on myself, that's when I really made improvement. And then that's when I could actually truly help other people. Before I thought I was helping people, I thought I was contributing to people, and I was. People were thanking me for what I was doing in the past, but I wasn't able to truly help them in the way that I can now because I've overcome what I've overcome. Now I have the real wisdom to be able to help people. So in the 10 years of teaching in America, I was able to help a few thousand people. But now, just in a couple of years teaching after I really truly know the teachings of the Buddha, now I've been helping tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. By the time I die, it'll probably be millions and millions of people uh, that I'll be able to actually help. Where by being stuck in the past, where I was just trying to help other people and I wasn't focused on my own path, I wasn't able to truly help. I wasn't truly able to dedicate to my own practice because I had my priorities misaligned. So if you're in business or whatever you were doing in your life, you've always got to put yourself first. And people oftentimes think this is selfish, but you're putting yourself first because if you don't ensure that you have what you need in terms of wisdom and you're not whole, then you're not going to be able to help other people. And even though I was had money and I was had a certain amount of wisdom and understanding to help others, I didn't have everything I needed because I wasn't even helping myself. So this is why you have to have loving kindness for yourself first before you start helping other people or trying to help other people. So no matter what you're doing in life, whether it's your home life or your business life, you've always got to take the time and prioritize your development of your own life practice, which includes meditation, yes, but includes a lot of other things too. So by you putting yourself first and your whole then you're more available and more helpful to other people around you. I didn't have that right when I was in business. But then once I started focusing on here in Thailand, that's when I ended up getting that right and it actually worked. There are a few people on Facebook that are saying they're grateful for you, Venerable Sir, and thank you. But Bruce has a question. He asks, did you have a dedicated teacher to help you learn the teachings of the Buddha? I did not have any teachers to help me learn the teachings of the Buddha. There are people in my life that practice the teachings of the Buddha, but they didn't even necessarily understand the teachings the way that I do now because they were learning in different ways that they were learning. But I've never had a dedicated teacher or somebody to share these teachings with me in the way that I share them with you. And because it was such a struggle for me to understand these teachings on my own, 
now that's one of the reasons why I'm so motivated to share these teachings with you because it's not normal for somebody to be able to experience the experiences that I've had on their own without a dedicated teacher. The vast majority of the world is going to need a teacher. They're going to need guidance on this path. But the resources and the availability of these teachings in the English language and to help people who are in places like America, the UK, Australia, and other English-speaking countries and people who are in non English speaking countries, but are speaking English, they're not able to access these teachings in English in the way that I share them. So once I started to understand these teachings in the way that I did, and I had the proper language that I felt was important to share, that's why I started documenting the teachings in the way that I did. And now I'm very motivated to share these with people because it is such a challenge and so much work to be able to get to where I am on this path without any guidance, without any help. That's not something that I would ever suggest that anybody ever attempt to do or that you would ever even be able to do as a person who is interested in progressing to enlightenment. It's it's only a unique type of individual that's able to actually do that. And now that I've experienced all that heartache and all that misery and all that difficulty of having done it on my own, That's why I'm now motivated to share it with anybody who has a real sincere interest to learn and practice. And the final question on Facebook is from Michael. He writes, Teacher David, what was the the moment in your life that you finally decided to let go of craving and attachment? Um, (laughs) Well, you know, in 2018, when I started having a significant amount of things happening in my life, and I realized how highly discontent the mind is, and I understood what the problem was, which was craving, desire, attachment, that's when I got dedicated to doing it. And then, you know, it took time to train the mind and and really actually do it and actually accomplish it. So it it was in 2018 that I really started to deeply understand the problem and understood the solution to it and how to fix it. Well, on Zoom, Marcy has a question. She writes, thank you, Richard David. Would you please elaborate more on when you remembered your past lives and how you knew it was a true past life? Sure. So all throughout my life, from as early as I can remember, as about age eight, I started having experiences where I was remembering things from the past. And I didn't necessarily understand it was past lives at that point because I didn't understand the cycle of rebirth. It wasn't until much later that I started putting it together. But all throughout my life at different times, I was having different memories and different things from the past. But I just didn't know that it was a past life. And then in 2018, when I went to the temple and asked to ordain and they agreed, I stayed at the temple by myself and my family left and the plan was for me to ordain in the coming weeks or months. When I was at that temple, I was on the phone with my wife and I was talking about the teachings and how everything was starting to come together for me and I was starting to observe certain things about the teachings and I I said to her as I said, you know, there's just this thing about the cycle of rebirth that I haven't really seen my past lives the way that I thought that, you know, would occur. And then at that moment, there was like this movie strip of 
past lives. It was like it was like if you've ever seen the old time movie strips where it was like slide by slide by slide by slide. There was like this movie strip going through my mind of all these different animal existences, you know, one after another, after another, after another, after another of all these different animal existences. And then as that was happening, I was just like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. What's going on? What's going on? Like all these animals, all these animals. And then I started to think back to all the memories that I was having throughout different times of my life about all these different scenarios and all these different situations that I was in and that I was experiencing. And I started piecing it together and observing that this was past lives. So I observed all these countless animal existences and I observed two previous human lives before this life. And throughout this period of time, I didn't know anything about the cycle of rebirth other than the fact that the Buddha taught the cycle of rebirth. That's all I knew. And it wasn't until about three or four months later that I was reading the teachings of the Buddha in his own words. And he was describing what we would experience in terms of our past lives, that he was explaining about how we've had countless past lives and all these other different things about the cycle of rebirth. And what he was explaining in his words was exactly what I had experienced over the course of my life and at that particular time at that temple. So I had these experiences first of observing past lives. And then when I read the teachings of the Buddha, it was just confirming what I had already experienced, which is very different than reading the teachings about the cycle of rebirth and then having the experiences, because that could be said that, okay, this person's mind was conditioned to have those experiences because they read the teachings first and then their mind kind of experience those things. But what I was having happen was I was having all these different experiences in life. And then the more I was reading and understanding the Buddhist teachings, it was actually confirming what I already knew. So as I was reading the words of the Buddha in English, it was like talking to an old friend, somebody that I'd already knew 2,500 years ago. And I was like, oh my goodness, I know this. And it was like, I was reading it and it was like confirming for me the things that I had already knew. And then what I was observing is as I was reading the Buddhist teachings, the words and the language that was being used, I didn't feel was the best language to represent the teachings that I already knew. So as I was reading the Buddhist teachings, I was like, this isn't exactly correct. This isn't 100% accurate. I would like to update these teachings. So that's when I started updating the word choices. And then I would go online and I would look at talks that ordained practitioners were giving in English. And they were being asked questions of students and students were asking them questions and the ordained practitioners didn't have the answer. And I knew the answer to those questions. Or I was looking in Facebook groups and I saw all these different questions that different people were having in Facebook groups. And I would read the answers that were being provided and I felt like they weren't the most accurate and best answers. So I would start including those questions into the books that I was writing because I felt like I understood the answers because I'd experienced going from a highly discontent mind to a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So I knew the wisdom that I had acquired was the truth because otherwise my mind wouldn't have gone from discontentedness to peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So the wisdom that was coming out in the books that I was writing was based on things that I had experienced in life 
And then when I was learning about the Buddhist teachings, I didn't feel like the translators that were translating the teachings were providing the most accurate words. So I felt like I needed to update these books. And that's what I ended up ultimately doing. So the past lives that I observed were things that happened over the course of my life at multiple different times. And then I started piecing it together and I realized that, wow, this, these are all past lives. And then about three or four months later, when I saw it in the words of the Buddha and he was describing the same things that I had experienced, that's when I knew it was surely the truth. Well, what advice do you have for a single parent who aspires to, to attain enlightenment, but maybe struggles with a daily challenging life? For anybody who's in a situation where they're very challenged with life, whether it's a single parent or even if you're a single person or you're just really busy with work or school or anything like that, it's important to not put pressure and stress on yourself to be enlightened today. Understand that it's a gradual practice. It's a gradual progress to actually move the mind to enlightenment. It's not sit down, meditate and attain enlightenment right now. It's gradually train over multiple months and multiple years. So if you're a single parent, just do what you can do. Start wherever you can start. If that's one class a month, if that's one chapter a month, if that's one meditation a week, you know, just start there and then gradually evolve where you're maybe, you know, three meditations a week and you know, two classes a week or something like that, and just gradually build it up. Don't feel like you have to be perfect all at once. Don't put a lot of pressure on yourself. Just start wherever you can start and then just gradually work towards that. Don't feel like you have to keep up with others because it's your own independent journey. If you miss a class or if you can't come to class for some reason or another and you feel like, oh, I'm so far behind, well, that's because your mind is comparing and judging that you want to be with everybody else and just realize this is your own independent journey that you are where you are and you can only spend the amount of time that you spend don't be complacent but also don't crave to necessarily be perfect today and just do whatever you can do each day and just gradually chip away at it well as for people who experience racism and discrimination what advice do you have for them So racism and discrimination is based on other people's craving, anger, and ignorance. They're unknowing of true reality. When people function with craving, anger, and ignorance, they're going to have hatred or they're going to discriminate against you for one reason or another. They're going to have racism. You can't control what other people do. You can only control your own life and your own mind and realize that Those type of decisions that people make, it's based in their own pollution of mind and only they can solve that. It's not a reflection of who you are that someone's choosing to be racist or discriminatory towards you. It's a reflection of what they've got in their own mind and you can't fix that. Oftentimes we go out and we protest, people get angry, people demand change. But that can only occur if there's a certain amount of education in order to help those people understand the wisdom that being racist and discriminatory is only hurting them. So what you should do is instead of, you know, kind of forcing your way and trying to force things with a certain person and trying to force that person to change their way, 
Instead, move towards the people that are supportive, encouraging, and motivating, and that accept you as you are unconditionally, and do good things with those people. Rather than try to force these people to eliminate their hatred, which you can't force people to eliminate their hatred. If they're going to hold on to their hatred, they're going to hold on to their hatred. Only their own personal choices to eliminate that is what's going to eliminate it. Us being angry and forceful on the street to demand people to stop being racist and discriminatory isn't going to change their mind. Only they can change their mind. So we can learn and reflect and practice these teachings with supportive people, encouraging people, motivating people who aren't racist and who aren't discriminating. And then as that world gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more people participate in that, then these people who are left on the outside because of their hatred and their racism and discrimination, eventually they're going to be like, man, those people are having a lot of fun. They're, you know, they're enjoying each other. They're living peacefully and harmoniously with each other. We're over here being angry and hateful and vindictive. You know, I'd like to get into that group. Well, if you'd like to, you're going to have to get rid of that hatred. If you'd like to come over here and have fun with us, um, okay, I'll get rid of my hatred. All right, come on in. You can have fun. Come on in. Um, so that's the way that you deal with it is, is you don't give it any significance, that you understand that you can't force people to change and you move in a direction where people are supportive, encouraging and motivating and do good things with those people. And if these other people choose to come into your life and choose to eliminate their hatred, then wonderful. They're welcome with all you know open arms. But if they want to hold on to their hatred and their resentment and their hostility, then yeah, we're not interested in that. You know, you, you can stay, stay over there. But when you're ready to let that stuff go, you're welcome to join us. Well, Marcy has your hand raised. That's good to hear. So, uh, Teacher David, my question to you is that in the early stages of your practice, um, have you ever come across where you felt that you had clarity on a situation and you felt as though you were making the right, uh, the right choices with right speech, right action, right view, and then later on, after you had you know, declared your choice, felt doubt that maybe you weren't interpreting right action, right view, or you have doubt in yourself of, of making that decision. Sure, that comes up whenever that fetter of doubt is there in the mind. So by doing the work to investigate the teachings and then think and ponder and observe through trial and error what's working and what's not working, that's where you get confirmed in your decisions. So you'll make mistakes along the way. Even when you learn in these classes and you have the intellectual knowledge, you've read the book, you've talked to your teacher, you've been in the classes, you'll still go out there and you'll make decisions that won't be the best decisions. And through that trial and error, you'll see that, aha, I didn't quite do that so well. And that's why that you know, ended in an unwholesome way or you know, it didn't go as I thought. So this is part of the learning process and building your wisdom is the trial and error. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Let's go to Nick. Thank you, Boston. Teacher David, a couple questions recently popped up on YouTube. Susan would like to know, what scriptures do you rely on for the wisdom of the books that you wrote? Is, is the Pauline canon? 
Yes, the Pali Canon is the original, most complete source of Gautama Buddha's teachings. It's assembled in 45 volumes of books, but it's not really organized in any particular way. So the teachings that I share have been extracted from those 45 volumes of books. So rather than you needing to go through those thick 45 volumes of books, which has a lot of repetition that isn't really organized in any particular way, the books that I have assembled have been extracted from the Pali Canon and organized in a particular way that helps you to digest them in more manageable, digestible bites. Whereas if you were to try to read the entire Pali Canon, it would take you years upon years, let alone understand it and practice it and gain clarity on it and so forth and so on. So by learning with a teacher who's already done the work, then they're kind of handing it to you in a way that you can then get more immediate, more potent value out of it because they're sharing with you, this is the teachings that led to the experiences that I've had. So teacher, should we study with you the words of the Buddha or should we look to Pali Canon or to the Dhammapada itself? So what you're doing is you're on this independent journey. It's your own journey to enlightenment and your teacher is a guide, essentially a student who's off the path and in the darkness, they're they needing to walk this path. And there's this dark path and they're in the darkness. And what the teacher's doing is the teacher's holding the light. We come over and we kind of stand with you and we're like, hi, how are you doing, Nick? Hi, Marcy. Hi, Bossom. Hi, Jacqueline. You know, nice to meet you. And we're holding this light and we're kind of showing you the path and we're illuminating the path for you. We're like, here, this is the path. And we're pointing it out for you. And we're, we're helping you with books and audiobooks and classes and personal guidance. And we're showing you this path. But we only show it to you if you ask questions and you ask for guidance. And then, you know, we go away and you go and kind of walk the path a bit on your own. And then sometimes you veer off the path or you stumble or you fall or you fall in a pit or you fall in a hole or you know you you have troubles like this maybe a tree falls over and blocks the path and you're like teacher come over here i need your guidance can you bring the light again i need to see the path it's like oh okay here's the light and you know, bring the light the teacher kind of helps you a little ways uh, maybe even hold your hand or hold your bags while you walk a little bit but nonetheless by doing this back and forth you are on your own journey, but the teacher is guiding you. And the resources that we share are the resources that are going to illuminate the path for you. So our goal is to try to light up this path where there's markers along the side of the path, making it as bright as possible. So whether I'm standing there holding the light for you or whether you're walking by yourself, you can still see that path as clearly as possible. So those books and audiobooks and recordings and videos and things that I share, that's helping you to see the path more and more clear that you can, you know, investigate those teachings and understand them on your own at your own pace and your own independent journey. And then you reach out to me for help as you need help. I don't suggest that you go try to track down any particular resources or teachings outside of what I already share because it would take you years to go through all the resources that I share. I've got countless YouTube videos and podcasts and now books and at some point audiobooks and more classes 
retreats and things like this, you could spend years just investigating the teachings that I share, where if you go outside to encounter things like the Dhammapada or even other Dhamma talks from other teachers that are even in the same tradition, every teacher kind of talks about these teachings in different ways, uses different language, talks about different things. When you're first starting out on the path for the first several years, you kind of would like to just get engrossed with one particular teacher. As long as you're seeing progress in the first couple of weeks and the first couple of months, and you know that you're independently verifying the teachings and you can see the condition of the mind gradually improving, you know that this teacher is sharing the truth. There's no reason to look somewhere else. This is just the craving of the mind wanting to look somewhere else. So if there's a topic that you're looking to understand, you build this trust in this relationship with your teacher that you can say, hey, teacher, I've heard that there's something called the six sense bases. Can you help me understand that? Or, hey, teacher, what's this thing with mindfulness? Can you help me understand this mindfulness stuff? Or what about meditation? I know there's a couple of different meditations the Buddha taught. What would you teach in terms of meditation? So you go to that person and you build this trusting relationship. And what you discover is every time you ask this teacher questions, they're more than interested to help you. And when they do help you, you learn, you reflect, and you practice, and it works. Every time I talk to this person, what I'm learning from them, it keeps working. So then it builds your trust and it builds your confidence in this person that they're going to be able to help you because the light that they're holding is really bright and it's helping me to see this path. Whereas if what you're learning from a teacher isn't working or it doesn't make sense or it's not clear, you don't understand how it's fitting together, you're having difficulties, you're stumbling over it, you ask for help, they're not willing to help you. If you experience these kind of things, then you're probably not with the right person. So I would suggest just reaching out to somebody that you trust and build a relationship with that person. And then you should be able to observe that you can independently verify their teachings and see the truth for yourself. And then you see the condition of the mind gradually improving. And that's how you know you're learning the truth. So are you saying with 100% certainty, you have all the resources uh, a practitioner, a student, a person would ever need to attain enlightenment? Whether somebody actually attains enlightenment or not is up to each individual and the dedication and the diligence that they put into their own practice. Each person has to do their own work. But I have 100% confidence that I have the ability to help people to get to enlightenment with the resources that I share and the teachings that I share. I know that I can help somebody to get to enlightenment. But whether they actually attain it or not is based on their own determination, their dedication, their diligence, you know, the effort that they put in. Each individual has to do their own work because I can't give somebody enlightenment. They have to develop their own mind themselves. And each individual is starting at different point in their practice in terms of the amount of pollution in their mind. And each person is going to put a certain amount of dedication or diligence into their practice. But if you're willing to do the work, I'm right here with the resources and with the support to help you. But each person would have to do that. And I have 100% confidence in the resources and what I'm sharing that it will lead you to enlightenment if you're willing to do the work. I see. But would you consider your resources like a one-stop shop where everything that is, if a person had the dedication, determination, diligence, 
that they could do it with you under the venerable teacher David Royles. Everything that I share is what's led to the experiences that I've had. At this point, I'm not saying that I'm enlightened or I'm unenlightened, but I can share with you that the way that I describe enlightenment is based on my own experiences that I no longer experience any discontentedness. The mind is completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. I no longer experience any anger, frustration, boredom, loneliness, guilt, shame, fear, shyness, uh, resentment, jealousy. All of that stuff is long gone in the past. And what led to that happening for me is what I share in the teachings. So I'm not going to say that I'm a one-stop shop and that you don't ever need to look at anything else because for me that would be a statement of arrogance or pride or ego if I would say something like that. But I'm 100% confident in that what I'm experiencing in terms of my mental state and what I used to experience in the past is you know 180 degree difference. And I know that having experienced that, that the teachings that I share is what led to that. So if somebody learns what I share, then what I'm sharing is what led to the experiences that I'm having with the condition of the mind. And whether you experience those same results or not is based on your dedication and based on the work that you do. And you should be able to see within a couple of days, with a couple of weeks, within a a month or two, that the condition of your mind is gradually improving. And then you'll have the confidence that what you're learning with me is improving the condition of your mind. But there's never a time where you will come to me with some challenge or some difficulty and I would say, oh, you need to go see this teacher or you need to go see that teacher. I don't know the answer to that. I haven't experienced that situation over the years of teaching. I haven't ever been at a loss for what it would take for somebody to overcome any particular obstacle that they're experiencing. But I wouldn't go as far as saying what you're asking, Nick, just because in order to say something like that, it would have to come from a position of arrogance and ego. And I I wouldn't say something like that. I see. I understand. Let me clarify, Teacher David, you have the resources to help us um, if we have the dedication to attain enlightenment. And um, would someone need a teacher or can we just go read books from, say, Technic Han or anywhere else? Okay, I understand. So a student wouldn't be able to just read books and watch videos and attain enlightenment. You're going to need some guidance. You're going to need clarification. You're going to need to ask questions. And that's why everybody needs a teacher except for one unique type of individual that doesn't actually need a teacher in order to attain enlightenment. So you're going to need guidance along the path, and that's what a teacher's for. That's why a teacher provides resources. That's why there's a community of people to be able to help you as you decide to progress on this path. In terms of other teachers' teachings, I don't suggest that somebody mix and match different resources and different teachings because this is going to really confuse the mind, not only because there's so many different traditions out there, but even within the same tradition, different teachers explain things in different ways. So if you mix and match resources from different teachers and you're trying to attain enlightenment on your own, you're going about it, in my view, in my opinion, the wrong way. Because if you're doing it by yourself, 
that's not going to produce the results that you need. You need guidance. You need a teacher. If you are mixing and matching resources from different teachers, then you're not understanding the universal truth of impermanence in that there's no such thing as Buddhism. There's essentially all these different flavors of what people are calling Buddhism that have been modified and changed over 2,500 years. And if you try to mix and match different resources from different teachers, you're going to be seeing things and understanding things in so many different ways that you're not gonna see this path very clearly. What one teacher can do for you, and you should be able to see the improvements within a few weeks or a few months, is they should be able to illuminate the path very clearly for you so it's very easy for you to walk forward. So whether you're learning with me or you're learning with some other teacher, I would suggest you stick with just one teacher, especially when you're first starting out, and you should be able to see that you can independently confirm the teachings you're independently verifying that, and you see that the condition of the mind is improving, that discontentedness is gradually diminishing. And if you're seeing that, then you know that you're learning the truth, and what you're learning from that teacher is improving the condition of the mind. And the resources that I share will do that if you're willing to put in the work to actually move the mind and evolve the mind towards enlightenment. I see. So we would need a teacher that we could converse with and ask questions to. And we'll know if it's working or not by the condition of our own mind improving. We will experience the results. So we'll know. Is this correct? Right. That's correct. Because there's no belief in the Buddhist teachings. You're not just believing things and doing things based on faith and belief, but instead you're learning, reflecting, and practicing. And as you're training the mind, you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing, and that's how you know you're on the right path and you're learning the truth, and what this particular teacher is sharing with you is working, or else your discontentedness wouldn't be diminishing. So in situations where you used to once get angry, now you just get irritated. And now, a little bit later, you just get annoyed. And a little bit later, a few months down the road, the same thing that used to have anger and rage in the mind, the mind's peaceful. You don't feel anything at all. And that's how you know the training that you're undergoing is working. It's the truth. And this particular teacher that's sharing those teachings with you is ultimately sharing the truth with you because you've seen the changes in the condition of the mind. The Buddhist teachings aren't believe a whole bunch of things and hope that something good happens for you at the end of your life. That's not what the Buddha did. The Buddha taught things, and then when you learn and practice those, you see the improvement to the condition of your mind now in this present life. And that's how people knew that he was a Buddha, because they knew what it felt like to be angry and sad and frustrated and feel guilt and shame. And as they learned and practiced his teachings, they could see that their mind no longer had those same feelings and that their mind was moving to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And that's how they know this guy is a Buddha because he meets the criteria of being a Buddha. Thank you for explaining that to us, teacher. The final question on YouTube comes from Juan. And uh, first, he thanks you for explaining the things like COVID and Ukraine and how um, uh, how to control you know, uh, what you said earlier. But uh, he, he expresses these thoughts come up and he would like to know, you know, you tell yourself that it's a natural law of existence, but the feeling of sadness now with you, is that felt for a moment or do you not experience sadness or happiness yourself? 
I don't experience any sadness whatsoever. When I see something like a war or COVID, immediately I know exactly why that occurred and I know it's impermanent and I don't have a craving for things to be a certain way in the world. So there's no sadness whatsoever when those kind of things happen. In terms of happiness, I describe happiness as a conditioned feeling that's temporary. I feel joy all day long. I wake up joyful all day long. I'm joyful, go to sleep joyful. There's nothing that creates any kind of sadness or irritation or frustration in the mind whatsoever. But that comes with training. So even though you hear me say that, okay, it's craving, it's your mind wanting the world to be a certain way, and that's why your mind's experiencing sadness. I can tell you the reason why, but that's not going to stop it from occurring. The only thing that's going to stop it from occurring is when you train your mind. Because yes, at one time in my life, I would watch the news and I would get very angry. I would get frustrated. I would, uh, you know, I went one time a whole year without watching any TV in America. It was the most peaceful time of my entire life in terms of uh, when I was in America that I didn't watch any news. I didn't watch any TV or anything for an entire year. So I know what those experiences are like, but because now... I've gone through the training and I've trained the mind. I can watch the news and I can see what's going on around the world and it doesn't affect the mind because I understand why these things are happening and the mind has been trained to not crave for things to be a certain way. So there's the intellectual learning of why the mind is experiencing what it's experiencing in terms of discontentedness. Then there's reflecting on it and starting to see the truth. But then there's practicing and training the mind actively on a daily basis to eliminate the pollution in the mind, the conditions in the mind that are causing the discontentedness. And once you purify the mind and you eradicate those conditions that are causing the discontentedness, then the mind will no longer experience discontentedness whatsoever. So for someone like Juan that has experienced sadness for a moment, you know, before he cuts it off or anything like this. Um, the advice is just, just progress and study and practice the teachings of the Buddha? Yes, because cutting off the news isn't solving the problem. That's what the unenlightened mind thinks, is that by turning off the news, it's going to solve the problem. The problem is the craving, desire, attachment. The problem isn't the war. There's the war, there's COVID. Those things are happening based on the natural laws of existence. Those things are always going to happen for a certain period of time in the world. Things are going to happen in the world that you disagree with and that you don't like to see occur. Those things happening aren't the problem. Yes, they are a problem, but they're not the real problem. The real problem is that your mind wants there to be permanent health in the world. Your mind has this longing, this craving for there to never be any war and no fighting, no bombing. Sure, it's a very wholesome aspiration that we never have any war in the world. Sure, I'd love to see that too someday. But the fact is, is that we have beings in the world that have craving, anger, and ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, and they're functioning in a way and they're making decisions in a way that is harmful and hurtful. And we can't change those beings. We have no way of changing those beings and decisions that they're making. So, the real problem that you are experiencing is your craving, your desire, your yearning, your longing, wanting the world to be a certain way. And you can't just snap your fingers and eliminate that. You have to gradually train the mind to eliminate that. 
And that's why the Buddha talks about the path to enlightenment is gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress, that you need to gradually train the mind to let go and not want the world to be a certain way. So if you're experiencing sadness when you see the news, turning off the news might be a temporary fix, but the real problem is deeply rooted in the mind that you have craving. Once you're enlightened, you can watch the news, you can watch whatever you'd like to watch and the mind won't be shaken up by it. So at a certain point, once you get a handle on the mind and you start getting it under training, realizing that you do have a problem watching the news and that the mind has craving and experiences sadness, what I would suggest after you get under training is to watch the news and try to see if that craving is still there and watch it in small little doses. And then you kind of train the mind for a few months and then you watch the news a couple of times. Is it still producing discontentedness? It is, okay, keep training, keep training, keep training. All right, go back to the news. Okay, less discontentedness. All right, keep training, keep training, watch the news. Oh, no discontentedness, look at that. That's how you know you're making progress. So if you just avoid the news, uh, you can't avoid it permanently. There's going to be people in your life that are gonna tell you the certain things that are going on in the world. If you still have that craving in the mind, it's gonna arise discontentedness. So the real solution is to remove and eliminate the craving. It can be helpful and wise to limit or eliminate the news for a period of time, but that's not permanent. You can't rely on that permanently. The only permanent solution is to eliminate the craving in the mind. That's what will ultimately solve the problem. Juan would like to know when the next retreat in Thailand will be and before we pass this back over to Bossom, I was wondering if you could take a moment to tell the listeners here also about the U.S. retreat and where they can find this information. Is it is it on BuddhaDailyWisdom.com? Yeah, everything's on BuddhaDailyWisdom.com. The next uh, retreat in Thailand is April 18th. I have a five-day course that I'm teaching And I teach every week here in Chiang Mai on uh, every Saturday. But there's a five-day class in April. There's one in August. There's one in November that are happening this year that you're welcome to come to if you live in Thailand or even if you're outside of Thailand. They just made it really easy for people to come into Thailand with COVID and everything. You can just test and go is what they call it. Uh, So it's really easy to to do that. So you're welcome to come to that. You're welcome to attend the classes online. You're going to need a combination of all of these things. Learning in person is really helpful. That's really the way to really bring the teachings into your life. But we can also do a lot online, too, because you need that consistent, ongoing learning. So this group learning program is restarting on Wednesday, and that's going to be that consistent learning for you. And then if you can come to Thailand or you can come to the retreat in America, which is happening in June, at the end of June, starting on the 26th of June, going to July 1st, you can do that. We're going to have classes in Egypt in July. We're also going to have a Buddhist pilgrimage tour at the end of this year in December, where I'm going to guide students along the path of the Buddha, going to where the Buddha was born, where he got enlightened, where he delivered his first teaching, where he died, and some of the other sites, like where important places where he taught. Uh, We're going to a, a temple where 
His doctor donated a, a temple to the Buddha. So we've got all these different activities and you can just choose to participate where you were able or where you would like to participate, whether it's online in America, Egypt, going to Nepal, India, here in Thailand. There's all these different opportunities to learn. And depending on where you live, you know, you can create an event in your local community as well. And then just invite me to come and then I'll come and teach you and your friends and your family, people in your community. You know, that's how the teachings come into various communities is by students inviting their teacher to come teach. Well, let's go back to Marcy. Uh, teacher David, I think you kind of answered this, but um, in, in your practice, did you ever find a time where you recognized you were having discontentedness, um, but you you under you understand the eightfold path you would know how, you know how to address it and stuff but it seemed to linger and you just couldn't you kind of felt stuck like a, a stuck like you couldn't get past this discontentedness and um but you have clarity like you have the knowledge and the understanding of the eightfold path and and if you did experience this what was what did you find beneficial yeah so after you learn enough of the teachings and you're practicing enough of the teachings you'll notice discontentedness will diminish but there's still like this ickiness there's still like this residual ickiness that kind of happens you like know the situation that happened you know what you're craving you're getting rid of it you're you're working on the meditation but there's just this ickiness this unsatisfactoriness this residual amount of discontentedness that's lingering and this is because of the lingering and residual craving desire attachment and you just need to keep putting together more and more of the teachings just continue to practice continue to meditate continue to accumulate more and more of the benefits and this is what will ultimately eliminate it it's kind of like if you were deadly thirsty <clears throat> you hadn't had anything to drink for many many days you know you could drink a glass of water but you're going to be thirsty like five minutes later and you might drink another glass of water and you're going to be thirsty an hour later you know you just have to put enough glasses of water together that the body's fully hydrated and it's going to take many weeks or many months for the body to get fully hydrated because it went through a period of such dehydration so it's the same thing with these teachings as we've lived so long in this life in previous lives without understanding these teachings and without having the wisdom and now even though we have the wisdom and we've done the intellectual learning the mind is still being transformed it's still transitioning it's still evolving so there's these lingering times of discontentedness that are just going to kind of linger and you just continue to practice you continue to try to cut that off you continue your meditation you continue to do things and then one day or one moment you'll be sitting there and then boom that discontentedness will be gone the buddha calls this maturing and release that you have to mature and mature and mature and mature and kind of accumulate the benefits and then it'll release so the best thing to do in that situation when you're experiencing that residual ickiness and discontentedness is don't crave the peacefulness because the more you crave the peacefulness the more the discontentedness will stay around because you'll be discontent that you're discontent <laughs> so what you do is during that ickiness is you just okay i'm feeling icky i don't like this i know it's craving and desire but i've dealt with that 
all right, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep meditating, keep staying dedicated to it, and it'll be gone. It's impermanent. It's just a matter of time. Just keep plugging away. Um, but the more you crave peacefulness, the longer that ickiness is going to stay around. Thank you so much. That was so Thank you. You're welcome. Let's go back to Nick. Thank you, Basim. Teacher David, it looks like there is one final question on Facebook from Michael. He writes, would you consider craving anger and ignorance as conditions? Yes, craving anger and ignorance are conditions. The mind has these pollutions, these taints, these conditions that are causing it to be unenlightened. And it's when you remove those conditions of craving anger and ignorance that now your mind is purified and with those conditions eliminated, now you experience the radiance and the brightness and the brilliance of the enlightened mind. Well, on Zoom, Manal has a question, she writes, what criteria did you did you review in order to extract the chapters from the Pali Canon into your books? Was this an extensive process for you or fairly straightforward? The first book, volume one, I wrote that based on the beginning, middle and end, providing an overall framework and structure of what's needed in order to have a solid foundation and understanding the path to enlightenment. And as I wrote that, then I extracted the words of the Buddha that I needed in order to support what I was laying down as the foundation of the path to enlightenment. So first I laid down all the teachings that illuminates the path, and then I extracted the words of the Buddha that support what I was sharing. Volumes 2 through 13 these extracts actually were done by a team of people at a temple. There was about 100 or 200 people, from what I understand, that went through and read all the 45 volumes of books, and they chose what chapters to extract. And it just happens to be those books that I encountered, that my wife purchased. And when I read them, there are these little books like this that these are the books that I was reading and realizing that I felt like the language could be improved. But what they've done is this organization, by extracting all these teachings, they've done all the work of reading through the 45 volumes of books and extracting the most important teachings. And then once they were in here, they worked for me, so I know they'll work for you. But then there are certain chapters that I had run across in terms of what I was looking at in the Pali Canon that aren't in these books. So the books that I wrote, I updated the language, I added the references, I put the explanations, and then I added some chapters into them that will ensure that you have what you need in order to learn the teachings of the Buddha and get to enlightenment. So it wasn't actually me that did the massive amount of extract from volumes 2 through 13. It was a, a team of people. So they really helped us. And this is how a community works together, is that there's no one person that's the grand poobah of Buddhism that's telling everybody what to do. Instead, every community is kind of choosing you know, what's the best thing that we can do to help others. So once we've gotten these books, from what they extracted, then I've got them and I'm like, hey, I can make these better. Let's improve these. So let's update the language. Let's add the references. Let's put some explanations. Let's add some more chapters. 
and then people proofread these, and now you guys uh, get to, to benefit from all this accumulation of benefit. And even before the team of people at the temple did their work, there was a ordained practitioner who spent 27 years translating these teachings. And then before him, there was another ordained practitioner that translated them for them. So there's been this whole community of people over hundreds and thousands of years for 2,500 years that have just been moving these teachings from place to place to place and building them up, making them more and more readily available and applicable to your life. And because of impermanence, a student doesn't necessarily know what's right or wrong in the teachings. And this is why you don't believe anything. So when I was learning these teachings, I didn't believe that these were the Buddhist teachings. I didn't believe them at all. I read them and I was like, huh, that's interesting. This book is telling me that the Buddha said that. Well, let me independently verify it and see if it's true. So then you start reflecting on it and you start practicing it and you start looking to see if it's the truth. So even though there's been countless people that have preserved these teachings over the years, you don't believe these teachings, including what I write in these books, Instead, you learn, reflect, and practice. And if you can independently verify it, and then through your training of the mind, you see the condition of your mind improving, ah, that's the truth. The Buddha surely said that because what he said 2,500 years ago, my teacher has this in this book. I learned it. I reflected on it. I independently verify it's the truth. I'm practicing it. I see that the condition of the mind's improving. That's how I know it's the truth and it's improving the condition of the mind. And that's where you can have confidence that what you're learning and practicing is the truth and it's leading to enlightenment. Well, I noticed something and I'm interested to ask about that. When, there is a, when it's a birthday of someone, of those who are learning with you, you do not share, you do not wish them a happy birthday. And even if someone dies, you do not share any condolences. Is this right? Yeah, I, I don't do that. It's not because I don't care. It's not because I'm not interested. It's not because I, I don't have affection for the people who are in my life and the students. But the reason why I don't say happy birthday or I don't share condolences is because the way that I see my role in life is that I need to be a teacher for everybody and anybody and leave myself open to all beings to be able to learn with me. And in my practice, I'm interested in treating all beings equally. So I don't have confidence in myself to be able to re to remember your birthday, Bossom, and wish you a happy birthday and also wish Marcy a happy birthday and Nick a happy birthday, too. With all these thousands of students and all these millions of people all over the world, I'm interested in treating everybody equally. And if I'm going to wish you a happy birthday, Bossom, I need to be able to wish everybody else a happy birthday, too. And that's not something that I think that I could actually manage. So rather than wishing you a happy birthday, I'm just going to share the teachings with you, allow you to learn them for free, for no cost. Just see if you can support the community if you choose, but you're not required to or expected to. But me wishing individual people happy birthday, it's not because I'm not interested in seeing you be well. In fact, I'm very interested in seeing you be well. I have an enormous amount of loving kindness and compassion for you. That's why I spend so much time sharing these teachings. But in terms of wishing you a happy birthday, I can't do that equally for all people. And I can't know when everybody's dying to be able to wish 
everybody condolences upon death of beings all over the world. So I just choose to not do that for anybody and just continue to teach and share teachings and you know so forth and so on. One last question, teacher. Uh, do you think that the teachings that you are sharing and you are dedicating your life for will help the world to be a better place to live in? It's going to help you to have a better life. And then collectively through all of us, individually choosing to bring these teachings into our life, collectively it'll accumulate into a better world. But it's important to understand that my goal isn't to change the world. My goal isn't to change you. My goal isn't to change individual people. My goal is to make myself available and that these teachings are available for those people who have a sincere interest to learn them and practice them. When people choose to do that, they will see the benefits for themselves in their own life. And there's nothing about the world that needs to be changed because the world's functioning through the natural laws of existence. The thing that needs to change is your understanding, your wisdom. You need to understand the natural laws of existence. And if every single person gradually does that over many generations, then the world will become a peaceful place. It will become a better place to exist. But it's not that we're trying to change the world or change other people. We're focusing on improving the condition of our own mind and changing our own mind. And by doing that through understanding the natural laws of existence and how this world functions, then each individual being will make better decisions, wiser decisions, and then gradually it will accumulate into the world becoming a more peaceful place. Many thanks, sir. That's all for today. Okay, I think this is officially the longest class that we've ever taught. Um, I guess it's probably a good idea that we that we do this maybe every once in a while. It's been two years since we've had a class like this. I'm actually quite amazed to see that there's still people hanging in there and still in class. So very pleased to see that you guys are so interested to learn these kind of things. Maybe we should do this every six months or once a year at the beginning of a group learning program. Maybe this is something that's really helpful for you guys to have just an open you know, session to ask any questions that you like. So uh, thank you all for your questions, for your participation, your interest in uh, learning the teachings of the Buddha. On Wednesday, we're going to be focusing on restarting this program and we're going to go through and I'm going to explain the program to you and how to get the most benefit out of it and what you can see as you progress through the program. So I'll explain to you how to get the most benefit and the best results out of learning and practicing these teachings in terms of progressing in this group learning program. And then on Sunday next week, we're going to be starting with discussing the Eightfold Path. I'm going to have a three-part series where for three consecutive Sundays, we're going to break down the Eightfold Path into three individual pieces so we can dive really deeply into each individual section, wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. So next Sunday, we're going to be discussing only right view and right intention. We're going to be using the words of the Buddha and penetrating that very deeply so that we can spend a lot of time really just understanding those two steps. Then the following Sunday, we'll go right speech, right action, right livelihood. Then the following Sunday will be right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This way you can deeply penetrate into each individual step. And then also it'll kind of give you an overview of what the entire path looks like 
So we'll be looking at it from kind of a broad, wide sense, but we'll also be penetrating deep into it so that you'll be able to glean some real detail out of the path to enlightenment. So I'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sabadikha. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.